There is magic, at least, an element of the unexplained, all around us every day. On that strange escapes at sea through the Bermuda Triangle, there were garlic ropes strung around the bridge where the captain controls the ship. It's to keep away evil spirits, he explained to us on a tour. When you're on a ship like this, you take every precaution, no matter what it is. We just want to make sure everything is good up here. As I write this, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, the likes of which our generation has never seen. My state is still under a stay-at-home order to slow the spread of the novel coronavirus. And though people are excitedly talking about the opening of some states, some feel it's too soon to do so and could result in worsening the situation rather than improving it. It's still far too early to tell what's going to happen or when this is going to end. None of us, barring those who can actually predict the future, know what the ultimate outcome is going to be. But I do think I know one thing that will result from the coronavirus. Interest in the paranormal is going to become even stronger than it is now. Historically, after massive events that changed the world as we know it, interest in what's beyond this life has skyrocketed. The American Civil War is directly tied to the rise of the spiritualism movement and the popularity of mediums, seances, and spirit photos. Hans Holzer and Ed and Lorraine Warren in the first wave of the paranormal celebrities became widely known during and just after the Vietnam War. After 9-11, the interest in the paranormal created an environment where Ghost Hunters, which started filming in 2003 and premiered in 2004, shot to instant fame as the first paranormal reality TV show. After a major widespread trauma, people need closure, and they look for answers anywhere they might be able to find them. Judging by what's happened in the past, I think there's going to be a surge in interest in the paranormal after all of this is over, which I hope is when you're reading this book. But more than just read other people's work and look for answers, I hope you take all those ideas, mash them up in your head, and add your own thoughts. And then, go out and find your own answers, and develop your own theories too. Every voice is as valid as the next in this conversation about the afterlife. It started long before us, and will go on long after we're gone. my ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I am joined by the spontaneous duo, Jay and Nick. Potato! Was that was that spontaneous? Sure, and special guest, Chris DeMar. <laughs> they didn't mean now, buddy. They didn't mean now. <laughs> On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant.
And we're back. Hi. Well, hello. How's everybody doing today? Um, I'm doing pretty good. I have been pounding my head into a John Keel book that we're going to be covering soon. And um, it is doing no good for my psyche. I am becoming more paranoid by the page. As much as we love John Keel, he does not do good things for your brain. No, no, no. In fact, if you want to believe genuinely deep down that your toaster is part of a conspiracy to kill you, read John Keel. Because I can make that argument that toasters are evil and an aspect of the phenomenon. Look, the toaster's clean. I have vetted the toaster. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, today we are not alone, are we? No, we are not. We are joined by a special guest, a friend of the show, Chris DeMars. How are you doing? Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? Doing great, Chris. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. I'm glad you put the call out and got back to me. Yeah, of course. I mean, we're not going to say no if somebody wants to come on and chat about spooky, weird stuff with us. That's kind of what we do. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, well, and I know, I know that feeling. I had, I used to have a podcast for uh, web development. It was a, it was a horror podcast mixed with web development. Huh. And like you said, you don't know if anybody wants to be on it unless you put it, like, yeah. tell people like, Hey, do you want to be on this podcast? Yeah. Like I'll, we'll do an interview. So. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that, that's exactly it. That's what we continuously try to do for us is we just take the shot. Like you never know the, the worst that's going to happen if somebody says no to you, you know, or just doesn't right. reply, but. Who cares? Right, exactly. I, I, right. I mean, if, yep. it, if it wasn't for just taking random chances, we wouldn't have interviewed Ralph Blumenthal. You know, and that was probably one of the dopest things that's ever happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. That was pretty cool. Um, okay. I mean, so Chris, you have a clothing company, right? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? I do. Yep. It's uh, called Loaded Chamber Clothing. <clears throat> and I started it last year. Um, something I've always just wanted to do is like a side hustle. And, uh, the reason I actually started it is because a lot of the clothes that I wear, um, come out of California and they must not have people in California that are like size three X and four X. So I wanted to make a clothing brand that was really cool. Um, that kind of had that Southern California vibe, but also offered bigger sizes for people like me. Cause I'm shit. I'm six, three, two eighty. So, yeah. you know, I buy a three XL. And I wash it, it turns into a medium. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of fix that problem. But yeah, loaded chamber clothing, loadedchamberclothing.com. Same on Instagram, uh, Facebook. It's really cool. I'll be doing a couple shows here coming up, uh, some motocross shows. I'll be going down to Indiana in September wow. for uh, a low rider car show to set up a vendor booth. I'll be at the Motor City Tattoo Convention in two weeks. Cool. With a vendor That's booth. cool. So yeah. Yeah, I'm stoked. I'm looking at your catalog right now, and some of these are really cool. All hucks, zero fucks. I don't know what that means, but I dig it. <laughs> so yeah, when you when you huck something, you like you just let loose. You you send it. You throw it really long or throw it really okay. far. Or like if you're out of it's it's a motocross term, right? So when you hit the top of the ramp, you just huck it and just wow. Okay. Just go. Oh, that's oh. cool. Very- you guys have never heard the heard the heard the expression "huck it across the room." No, never no. once. No, I just recently that's, that's, that's learned that right there. So, okay, so <laughs> well, so like I, I, I fish too. Like I'm, I'm an outdoors person, and so when I'm fishing, I also had a YouTube channel uh, for my fishing stuff, which I haven't picked up in a while. Uh, but like, if I'm casting something, like I'm hucking that motherfucker as yeah. far as I can <laughs> get it out of the water because I don't have a boat. I'm fishing from land, so like I got to get that lure out there. Mm-hmm. So. I'd be on camera saying, yeah, I'm going to huck this and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so. 
it's kind of funny. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's it's crazy to me. Every now and then you just stumble across a word that's apparently just part of someone's normal vocabulary yeah. that's completely new to you. Yeah, I mean, that happens to me a lot, but that's not surprising. Never underestimate a hobbyist and regional dialect. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very true. I mean, like, for example, like when Rory and I talk about War Machine, it sounds yeah. like we're talking gibberish to anyone who doesn't play the game. Yeah, or anytime we talk about LARP. Like, yeah. Yeah, th- then I no, that's when we get the weird looks from the waitstaff. True. Especially when people are talking in character and planning murders. Me and my girlfriend, we learned a, uh, a new word. We learned a new word yesterday or the other day. Uh, it's like a, a young kid's word. It's called chuggy. Chuggy. Has anybody heard of chuggy? No. no. Chuggy. What does it mean? So chuggy is when it's like when like something is like out of date. Like, oh, that's so chuggy. Oh, like, I mean, okay. I like Starbucks is chuggy. Like, <laughs> I don't I don't know. It's, it's, you have to just look it up. It's, <laughs> C-H-E-U-G-Y is how you spell it. Maybe that's why I didn't understand, or I couldn't get into the new Fresh Prince show. I just didn't understand what they were saying. I, it, the, the, their dialogue was incomprehensible. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was, and, and again, I kept asking, who is this for? Yeah, uh, not us, that's for sure. All right, so what we're talking about today. It's not the Fresh Prince it's, reboot? It, it is not the Fresh Prince. Oh, I uh, prepared the wrong notes. I'll, I'll just see myself damn out. damn it, Nicholas. We watched one episode and you took notes? God damn it. I, I'm not even sure I took notice. <laughs> You're going to prison. No, but for real, we're talking about Life with the Afterlife. 13 Truths I Learned About Ghosts by Amy Bruni. Mm-hmm. Who is, as we will discover, the, uh, a paranormal celebrity of sorts. And one of my personal favorites, I'm a big fan of the show and uh, a, a lot of the people that are in her sphere, which is why this book it, it came up. You know, we've talked to John Tenney on the show and, you know, all of us are big fans of him and he is mentioned frequently throughout here. I love the Newkirks and Hellier is kind of the thing that dragged me back into this, this world. Um, and I'm a member of the museum. So, and Greg and Dana are mentioned throughout this book. So naturally we, uh, we had to cover it. At least I had to cover it. So here we are. We ready to dive in? Actually, you know what? Before we dive in, what'd you guys think? Overall, everybody, what'd you guys think of the book? Um, I mean, I enjoyed it. I, uh, it was very conversationally written. It was very approachable. I thought that uh, you know, there was no point where I, I was sitting there scratching my head having to reread a paragraph four times to figure out what uh, she was trying to get at. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was good. Um, I think that there were a couple points where it dragged a little for me. But that said, it's because a lot, some of the topics that she's talked about, I've heard John Tenney talk about them. Right. I've heard the Newkirks talk about them. And I guess once you've been in the orbit of those people or listening to their, or I guess ingesting their content for long enough, uh, you could tell that they very much are influencing each other very directly. Oh, sure. They're all friends. So, of course, they, you know, they talk. Oh, absolutely. It, it was, uh, no, I, I enjoyed myself. I thought it was fun. This book is adorable. <laughs> that's a good way to describe it i would say i would i would agree i think right. it's adorable uh re- the, the section that you read about the coronavirus i just everything sagged out of me mm. as i was reading that it's just like oh oh past amy oh <laughs> oh this is forever now past amy yeah what about you chris what'd you think oh i liked it a lot um it's one of those books where it's easily readable um, a lot of good information in it. Like even the, like the side stories that are written in gray, mm-hmm. yes. like in the gray boxes yeah. or like the gray panels before like the, the right before the chapter ends. 
Um, I thought those were cool because it was more of like a personalized, mm-hmm. uh, like personalized stories. And, you know, she talks like if you're not familiar with the ghost bread, she talks about the ghost bread in here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's a really good book. I like it a lot. But I've been a fan of Amy's for like a long, 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 long time. So um, I really dig it. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. All right. Let's get into this. All right. Unlike many of the books that we cover on this show, this one comes from a TV star. In this book, we go through 13 truths posed by paranormal investigator, researcher, and one of the stars of Kindred Spirits, which is a paranormal investigation TV show on the Discovery Channel, Amy Bruni. She opens up the book talking about how this isn't a book that will explain the unexplainable, but rather that it is 13 truths or 13 ways of learning about ghosts and the paranormal. Quote, of opening your mind to new possibilities, of challenging your expectations, and of considering other perspectives and new ideas. She lets us know what to expect in this book, that in it, she will talk about her ideas that she has developed through years of investigating, how these ideas have changed and grown through these years, and that she will talk about what other researchers and investigators have taught her, how they've opened up her mind and helped her along the way. The first truth, or lesson as we will call them, that Amy goes over is that ghosts are people too. She starts this lesson by telling how she started in the paranormal world and how, for her, it started early in life. She grew up in Almeida, California, and the house that she lived in was haunted, naturally. Her parents were very new-agey, and they encouraged her and her siblings to not be scared of ghosts or the unknown, but rather to talk to the spirits and engage with them. To the Bruni family, this was totally normal, a fact that would help inform her opinions on ghosts presented throughout this book. Being raised by parents that embraced the paranormal rather than fear it likely helped when she saw a man hovering outside her bedroom window wearing an old green uniform eight feet off the ground. She knew that what she was seeing was a ghost and wasn't scared. She was, however, still a child, so she ran to get her mom, but when she got back, the man was gone. The family later found out that the Bruni house had been military housing, the city of Almeida had a long military history, and that the family that lived there had a son that had died in World War II. In addition, the house itself used to have a second-floor wraparound porch right in the location where the ghost was hovering, as if he was standing on something that was no longer there. Now, maybe it was the influence of this first full-on apparition, or maybe it was just the influence of her parents, but Amy developed an obsession with all things weird and strange. She would often have her mom drop her off at the library spending hours reading about ghosts. Hans Holzer, investigator of the Amityville Horror House, being one of her favorites to read. Weird things kept happening in the Bruni house. Once they had their neighbors over, who had a son about Amy's age, and the mother kept seeing a young boy out of the corner of her eye. In one of those instances, she saw the young boy run into the bathroom. Naturally, she assumed it was her son. After a minute or so, she mentioned to her husband that she expected him to be out by now. Her husband, likely confused, told her that her son was asleep on the couch. One time, the family had a pair of highly skeptical friends over, and right after saying how ghosts aren't real, witnessed a photo lift off the wall, hover in the air, and then crash to the floor. They never stepped foot in the house again, those friends. Later on in life, Amy took a photo of her sister, who was standing on the porch. When it was developed, they saw an elderly woman behind her. A neighbor said the woman looked just like the old lady who used to live in that house. Now, all of these events, and there are 
plenty more, helped continue to stoke the fire that was Amy's interest in the paranormal. Her father seized on that interest, and being a bit of an investigator and researcher himself, started taking her on his investigations of haunted places. This was a rush for her. She wanted to learn who these ghosts had been and why they were still around. And finally, all the hours in the library were being put to use. All while her father used the haunted history of these locations to continue to foster a love for history in his daughter. Eventually, she began taking trips to do solo investigations of known haunted sites. It was during this time that she came to the sudden realization that ghosts are people too. Quote, As much as ghost hunting is about the excitement of making contact, it's also about something else. You're talking to a person on the other side, a person who was once alive, and a person who is in a position that you could potentially end up in yourself one day. Amy believes that ghosts don't just stick around for fun, but rather, like many other investigators, she believes that it is unfinished business that keeps them here. Even more so, that these ghosts want to be heard. While filming Ghost Hunters, she and Adam Barry were routinely plagued with guilt. That show was not about helping the dead, but about establishing for people if their home was haunted or not. Plenty of spirits seemed to try and get their help, but they had to leave before aid could actually be provided. On one episode, they were investigating the Waverly Hills Sanatorium, which is a massive tuberculosis hospital and then home for elderly and mentally ill that was shut down for patient neglect after an estimated 20 to 62,000 people died, according to current owner Tina Mattingly. Her and Adam were investigating in the nurse's wing that, to their knowledge, had never been professionally investigated before. They asked the ghost to knock once for yes, twice for no, and were getting lots of constant back-and-forth responses. At one point, they said, in an effort to see how many ghosts were there, to knock if they, the ghosts, were in the room and they heard about 17 knocks from all around them. When it was time to leave, Adam and Amy felt bad. They didn't want to leave, but due to the cameramen having to go, they had to. The point of shows like Ghost Hunters was to prove that ghosts exist. They collected and showed their evidence and then moved on to the next case. This lack of resolution is how kindred spirits would eventually come to be. They wanted to bridge the gap between the living and the dead. Now, Amy and Adam travel the country, helping those that are in need. They once investigated the home of someone who wasn't using the entire floor of their home because she believed her brother was haunting it. Adam and Amy dig into the history of the locations and try to find out who is haunting the location so they can talk to them. They don't want to just say, yep, it's a ghost. They want to help the living understand their new ghostly roommates, not just acknowledge that they're there because ghosts are, after all, people, too. The second lesson, or truth, Amy goes over is, ghosts aren't trying to scare you. She says that, while these haunted locations can be frightening, in her experience, ghosts are almost never trying to scare you. They're just trying to communicate in the best way that they can. And how scary it must be to be able to see and hear the living, and not be able to be seen or heard. She claims that many of the spirits that she's encountered who were frightening at first ultimately ended up just needing to be heard. She gives us an example of this with one of her investigations. In season one of Kindred Spirits, her and Adam investigated a home in Connecticut. The family that lived there had lots of negative experiences, poltergeist activity, shadow people sightings, and more. 
They started their investigation with an EVP session, but were unable to get anything of substance until they got one name, Kotek. After some digging into the history and previous owners of the property, they discovered that the spirit was a previous owner who had immigrated here to the U.S. via Ellis Island. The previous owner, Kotek, had additionally never learned English. So they brought in a Polish translator. Once it was explained to Kotek that the mess in the house was due to the new homeowner's renovations, explained in a language that he understood, he no longer seemed as menacing. Kotek just wanted to understand and was lashing out in the only way he knew how. She goes on to say that sometimes the ghost is just an asshole and is trying to scare you for a laugh. One example being her investigation of the Randolph County Asylum in Winchester, Indiana, in Season 4 of Kindred Spirits. Here they interacted with the spirit named Harry Peg Dunn. In life, he was a good-natured person, though a bit of a prankster. She believes that Mr. Dunn was trying to have some fun, that just because he died, he didn't lose his prankster spirit. Amy believes that spirits will try to act as they did alive in their afterlife, and for Dunn, that means maybe some good old-fashioned hauntings. Fear of ghosts is rooted in the fear of the unknown. Once you take a moment to empathize with their situation, it becomes easier to understand their sometimes terrifying actions. While, in general, the vast majority of ghosts just want to communicate, some do mean to scare or harm, much in the same way that most people are basically good, but some people are assholes. She has also seen cases where the opposite was true, where the dead were trying to help or protect the living. What is interesting is both can be happening in the same house to different people. She uses the Perrin family as an example for this. The Perrin family, if you don't know, is the family that lived in the home that The Conjuring is based off of. Though Amy stresses that the movie takes many liberties and is nothing like the actual stories. The Warrens are liars. What do you know? <laughs> During season four of Kindred Spirits, they managed to get the Perrin family to return to the house and share their memories. While all had experienced severe trauma there, they all also had incredibly positive memories of their experiences with the supernatural here as well. On one hand, Carolyn Perrin was injured five times, once by a garden stake which flew up and impaled her leg, or having a hand scythe thrown at her neck. Cindy Perrin was almost drowned when an invisible force held her down in the bathtub and was locked in an old wooden box that lacked a lock. On the other hand, Andrea Perrin only had positive interactions with the spirits of the house, and she said that she felt protected. She thinks that this may be due to her keeping a diary of anomalous incidents, a way of ensuring that the spirits would never be forgotten. Roger Perrin reported being greeted every day by another female spirit who would lightly touch him on the back, an experience that Amy also had when she was investigating there. Cindy had terrible experiences in that home, yet also loved it. When Andrea Perrin wrote her books, it was Cindy who titled them House of Darkness, House of Light, because to her, the place had been both. Amy goes on to talk about Bathsheba Sherman, the witch from the Conjuring movie. Amy and Adam did manage to confirm that she had nothing to do with the house. She also had never murdered anyone. The records they found indicated that she was just a normal woman from a nearby homestead. The story of the demon witch spirit came from Ed and Lorraine Warren. While Amy doesn't hate the Warrens, she thinks, in fact, that they paved the way for the paranormal to enter the mainstream, and maybe they did, but as a 
side note for me, their repeated lies and frauds should never be forgotten. Because of the Warren's blame of Bathsheba Sherman, her headstone had been defaced multiple times, so much so that the Harrisville Historical Society had to remove it. And people still turn up at the house, either angrily trying to disprove the paranormal or just to scream. The Bathsheba situation shows why solid research is the most important part of paranormal investigation, that we shouldn't just make wild assumptions, especially if those might be based off conscious or unconscious bias. And with that, we are going to enter discussion question number one. I, before we do that, I just can't get the image out of my head of looking out like in the morning with your coffee in your hand, and there's just a guy standing in your driveway just going, ah! Ah! Sir! <laughs> Sir! That is not a demon. That is my cat. He is not even black. He is a standard calico. His name is Rick. Please <laughs> stop screaming at him. I mean, it might be screaming because it's a male calico. Because it's male calico. That thing is worth millions. I mean, he is trans. And <laughs> nice way to work your way out of the scenario. All right. What's the discussion question? So I want to talk about this last sections a bit, obviously. Yeah. Specifically, I want to focus on the fact that in one house, we had so many different accounts of good and bad things happening in this location. To me, it seems a bit odd. Based on some of the other stories and hauntings that we've read about, it seems odd to me that there would be such polar differences happening in the same location. So based on what we know so far, why do you think that the spirits would be acting so differently to the residents of the home? Do you think it was something about the location? Was it the people individually? What are your thoughts? So I, I think to me, I can see a couple answers here. Either A, there's multiple entities at play. Um, if we wanted to look at it through the John Keel cosmic tricksters light, it could easily be that it was uh, giving different responses to different people in order to confuse them, in order to kind of create this smoke screen where they could never really get at the truth of what's going on around them. Okay. Um, but I could also see, I mean, we've talked about this before, how some haunted places act as a mirror. It could be that whatever entity was there was spitting back whatever, I guess, intentions or uh, attitudes they were holding deep in their subconscious. If someone mm -hmm. had a lot of anger in them, a lot of violence, maybe it gave that back. Whereas if someone was more at peace with the situation, had rationalized it maybe uh, more maturely, maybe they will have a more positive experience. That said, or again, I go back to they could just be fucking with them. So kind of like like how maybe like with Alma Fielding, it was a lot, a lot of the activity was happening around her because of her, her, the traumas that she was having and all the other things. So it presented itself much more negatively in that, in that fashion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I yeah, and I, I mean, until I'm not in I think it's going to be different, a different answer depending on whatever house you go to. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, my understanding of the parent haunting I, I, I think for that one, I specifically more lean more heavily in the direction of that place acting like a mirror. And the reason is because every other investigator I've ever read who's gone and uh, looked there has experienced things which kind of support that idea. And then I'm not the first one to bring it up around, uh, regarding that property specifically. Right. And what's, what's funny is they actually didn't get a lot of activity when they were investigating, the, investigating themselves. They got very little in terms of it. Like... M 
the uh, the family when they came when they came they got some activity, but overall they didn't get that much, which was kind of surprising. What what if it's what if the reason they didn't get activity is because it is responding to intention, mm. and they came with the intention to help the spirits there, and whatever's there does not want help. Right, it could be. Uh, it, I don't. I, I'm again. I'm just spitballing. I, I'm not sure. Well, obviously, yeah. <laughs> um. So so obviously the mere the mere explanation would uh would would cover that quite nicely that whatever you're expecting is what you're going to get and to kind of expand that out that that could still stand even if we're dealing with individual spirits. Mm-hmm. Um Amy states at a few different points throughout the book that she considers what she does to be more social work for mm-hmm. the dead and that is one of the primary Things that they teach you when you're going like out into the fields of a, as a social worker of like human beings are primates that are meant to exist in troops and in a troop you're supposed to fulfill a certain type of social role and if you act if you put people in boxes they will eventually start behaving like whatever box you have stuck them in they will reflect your expectations of them because that's literally just natural for them to do. It's 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 the same thing that happens with like if a teenager screws up a few times and you start treating them like a delinquent, they will begin naturally escalating the behavior because it's what you expect of them. Whoa. Well, I, I, I kind of on that note, I some okay, stuff yeah. start to make sense, baby. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, but on that note though, it made me think. I mean, if we want to get take kind of like a metaphysical approach to looking at that sentiment. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about frequencies uh, mm-hmm. of, of reality or vibrational rates of atoms, things like that. What if your emotional state does shift your frequency in a way that there are multiple entities and this person runs into the bad ones more often than not because they have a more negative outlook. So they more often are on a frequency that that entity can mess with. Whereas Someone else who has a more positive mindset, their frequency might be on a different band where other spirits who are closer to that band would have an easier time interacting with them. So they their experience is negative or positive based in part by their own individual frequency, how almost how they can be interacting. Yeah, with. It, it, it's indicating yeah. where I, I, I would imagine like two entities that are closer in frequency to each other would have an easier time interacting mm. than those who are very separate, which is where. Again, like I'm going, I'm going off John Keel here. I, like, I really like that. I really like that. Well, and the whole idea of John Keel is that uh, everything exists on the on the bands of the su- the super spectrum of uh, a frequency, and that you know, Pat, basically, a lot of entities that we interact with, paranormal entities, they come from higher frequencies or lower frequencies outside of our visual or percep- perceivable range. Right. And so uh, I, I could see that as a possible explanation. Sure, I I dig that a lot. Absolutely, like uh, yeah, I like you like you said. I even when it's not just the phenomenon as a whole, when it's individual entities, I how we approach them is going to cause is most likely just going to cause massive differences mm-hmm. in how we behave. I'm like like Nick said, I'm not that surprised that the Kindred Spirits team didn't get a lot out of the Parent House because they weren't giving it anything you you see that with uh social work clients as well of it's like if you just don't feed into whatever act they felt compelled to put on because of whatever's been done to them or trained into them 
they'll eventually just exhaust themselves throwing against a throwing themselves against a brick wall right. and then you can start the real work because what's left at the foot of the brick wall is often the real them. Right. I dig that. That's very cool. Chris, what are your thoughts? <clears throat> I think it boils down to um it, like what everybody said. It it I, a piece from what everybody has said. Um definitely I think definitely intention in different planes of existence, right? Like if you're going in there looking for some evil shit, you might find some evil shit, right? Yeah, right. If you're going in there to be a helping hand, like aiming at them, they're they might just sense that, right? Yeah. And be like, oh, you know what? Like, we don't really need to fuck with these people that much, or you know, other possible negative entities will you know stay back, and the good ones will come through. Like this just happened. I don't know when it was recorded, but it was Brian Murray and I think her name's Rachel Stratton and they went to the conjuring house and they stayed two weeks mm. and they got different things, um, spirit box stuff. And like they heard, they heard noises, but I think they also understood that there was plenty of different spirits in there, but nothing so-called demonic that like Bathsheba would portray. Right. Right. So I think it really all it boils down to, the people in the house or, you know, the intentions that are being set when somebody comes to visit for sure. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I think I, I mean, I think my entire thought about this question just recently changed. I did a thing. I <laughs> helped do a thing. <laughs> because I really like the idea of like the, 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 our individual frequencies potentially affecting how or what we can be interacted with. Well, and taking that idea, Rory, and applying it to experiences that we've shared, mm -hmm. um, I mean, what did when we went to that host factory, for example, when we met, met an entity that I would deem malevolent? Yeah, um, I would agree. What were our expectations going into that? We were stupid. I mean, I, I say kids, young twenties, but kids. Yeah. Uh, we were stupid kids, and we were we didn't know really what we were doing. And admittedly, we were going there for a thrill. Yeah. No, I mean, our intention was to ghost hunt. It was to ghost hunt to experience something spooky. Right. And fuck, did we? Yeah. So, uh, and I don't know, it, it is an interesting lens to look at your own paranormal uh, experiences through. Now, granted, there are times where the paranormal experience had did not seem to jive at all with my expectations. Mm -hmm. But, you know, who knows? Who knows how that really is working at the end of the day? Or if there is some agency that those things might be able to kind of force the issue if they choose so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like it. Any last thoughts on this one before we uh, move on? All right. Nope. Well, I got we nothing. will keep going then. Truth number three or lesson. I think I like lesson. We'll go with lesson number three. Ghost hunting is a hobby, not a career. One of the most common things that Amy gets asked is how she managed to turn her odd hobby into a career. The short answer, she has no idea. Unsurprisingly, in a field with no support, there is no traditional path. There's no school to go to or internships to take. She was investigating for fun, often at her own expense, for years before she managed to get on TV. The truth is, in her opinion, that she just got incredibly lucky. When Ghost Hunters debuted, there was a huge surge in amateur ghost hunting groups. Naturally, a team started near her in Sacramento. She interviewed with them and joined the team. For the first time in a long time, people were talking openly about ghosts and spirits, leading to them having too many cases to handle. They did preliminary screenings over the phone, 
then had to fill out an in-depth questionnaire, then they would divvy the cases out amongst the team. There were so many cases that any time that she had not working was devoted to these investigations. Though, she points out, these investigations were not so much about actually trying to solve the problem, but rather just collect evidence that spirits or ghosts were there. In addition to the team, Amy would continue to branch out and travel further and further to go to famous haunted locations. She attended ghost hunting gatherings hosted by Dave Schrader of Darkness Radio. These were like cons and investigations combined. You would meet paranormal celebrities by day and investigate by night. The influence of these events eventually led her to create Strange Escapes, her company that hosts similar style events. And one day, I would like to go to one. I mean, yeah, and also those con, uh, weird merger con things sound awesome. I'm sad those don't happen anymore. I would, ju- I, I desperately would just love to do something like that. I think it would be so much fun. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I really would like to get back to investigating. I haven't done it in years. Yeah, no, I, I plan to. I have so much Let's equipment. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm such a giant coward. <laughs> It'll that, be okay. That's okay. And I, I have, like I said, I have the equipment. All we have to do is just do it. Yeah, I think we could do it. And Chris, and Chris is ready. He wants to be. He wants to do it too. And he's a Michigander, so we can. Yeah, actually, uh, last night I was just talking about uh, leveraging some research that John Keel did into uh, the air into areas where UFOs more, are more likely to turn up and actually try to do some experiments and go out and skywatch mm-hmm. in those locations and see if we can see anything. Oh, I have a lot of things that I would love to do based on the, the, the books that we've read, the research that we've done ourselves. And I honestly think that we have the brain power and the will to, to be able to do some pretty cool shit. Like serial killers, eventually fantasizing simply isn't enough. Hey, I'm the true crime person. <laughs> the next thing you know, there's a bunch of parts in my trunk. I told you to get rid of those. I didn't say parts of what. God damn, you were... Could be Legos, you freak. After some time, <laughs> she changed gears a bit. She began moving towards presenting at Paranormal Cons and helping administrate a podcast affiliated with the TAPS Family Network. The TAPS Family Network is a group that was formed to help the overwhelming number of cases that TAPS the group behind the show Ghost Hunters, were getting. Eventually, Jane Grant invited her to produce Beyond Reality Radio, a podcast that they were producing. They met in person and began working together on the side, though it still wasn't Amy's primary job. That is, until Ghost Hunters International tried to recruit her, and in the face of that, Jane Grant invited her to instead just join the main Ghost Hunters team. She was hesitant at first, not wanting to give up the stability of her job, but in an effort to persuade her, they invited her to an investigation just to try it out. So she went with them to investigate the Clovis Avenue Sanatorium in Clovis, California, then immediately to an investigation of the USS Hornet. Then she was on the road for seven years. And the rest is, as they say, history. The truth is, becoming a pro ghost hunter took years of hard work and being told that she was crazy by everyone in her life. And it took a lot of luck to make it all happen. In 2010, she met Adam Barry, who was there, who was there fresh off Ghost Hunters Academy, a competition show to find the next member of the TAPS team. And they hit it off instantly and began to work together. In all of those hundreds of investigations that they went on, 
Far and away, the most consistent EVP that they got was help me. And hundreds of times, she was forced to walk away without addressing that need. Quote, since I've changed the focus of my investigations to find the why and not the what, I've seen cases where ghosts needed help with unfinished business. Sometimes they just wanted to be remembered. But then I would hear spirits crying and I wouldn't have the time to help them. We had a production schedule to keep and planes to catch because we were due at the next location. That's when I really started switching gears. This, as previously mentioned, is what led to the creation of Kindred Spirits and our next lesson. You're not crossing anyone over, ever. Part of the reason she left Ghost Hunters was the birth of her daughter. But she also felt that she had grown there as much as she could and wanted to further expand her horizons in ways she couldn't while living on the road. To her, the idea of telling someone to go to the light or to try and move them on is to dismiss them. It means we aren't listening to them or trying to help them. We're just telling them what to do. The decision to cross over is the ghosts alone. It's presumptuous and assumes the ghosts are stupid. As if there is a big bright light that they simply never noticed and can go to at any time. The truth is, we don't actually know what the other side is like. The closest glimpses we get are those through near-death experiences. But that is hardly enough to assume that we, the living, are the sole holders of the knowledge on how to move on. The goal, to her, is to help them resolve unfinished business. With that done, the hope is that they will then find a way to move on themselves. The idea of kindred spirits was to give agency to the dead, to tell their stories, uncover the reason that they have lingered, and almost every time, they feel that they have found that reason. She uses an example from Kindred Spirits Season 2, in this episode, they investigate the home of Delane and Wayne of Summersworth, New Hampshire. Delane and Wayne felt that their children were being threatened by a menacing presence. Their sons had woken being choked by an invisible entity, and their daughters saw a dark, shadowy man in her bedroom. The owners believed that the ghost might be Joseph Kelly, a famous murderer, or Delane's brother. However, Neither Kelly or Delane's brother showed up during an EVP session or spirit box sessions. Wayne uncovered a gravestone in the backyard, buried four feet deep. It belonged to Hollis B. Corbett, a World War I vet who died in 1946. They researched him and found that his headstone had a typo. It was meant to read Holly B. Corbett. Amy thought that this typo on the headstone may be what was pissing the spirit off. Then they spoke to the spirit and learned it had an interest in the daughter of the house as he too had a daughter. As for the sons, their choking episodes were attributed to sleep paralysis. To Amy, we simply don't know enough about the nature of the other side to definitely state anything, much less how the metaphysics of moving on works. More so, we don't know the beliefs of the dead. Why would telling people to go to the light work for someone whose faith system sees death in a very different way? The concept of the light was introduced by Emanuel Swedenborg in the 1700s. According to a familiar friend, John Tenney, quote, he talked about there being levels of reality, that this is only one realm of existence, and that there's one above it, and one above that. They get spiritually more progressed until they reach what could be considered the transcendent universal mind, in which individual spirit rejoins with its original source. When spiritualism came around in the 1800s, 
Andrew Jackson Davis furthered this thought when he wrote a book about the Summerland, an afterlife realm of perpetual sunshine. This idea took hold and led to our modern conceptions of going towards the light. Another aspect to consider is whether or not ghosts grow and evolve after death. If so, why would we talk to the ghost of a child who died a hundred years ago as if they were still a kid? Likely they have grown mentally and spiritually during this time, and they're not the same person that they were. It is along all of these thoughts that Amy believes that moving people on doesn't work. It's not up to us. We can help, sure, but it's the ghost that has the need. And she has seen time and time again that when the ghost is identified and their needs are addressed, the haunting usually either goes away or loses any perceived maliciousness. Usually. Now, discussion question number two. Let's talk about crossing over. So, what do you guys think about the concept of this? Do you think the ghosts are left behind because of unfinished business? Do you think that it's just an imprint? And do you think that it's the place of investigators to do things like help them move into the light, so to speak? Ooh, so I, I remember reading that specifically. And um, unfinished business, yeah. An imprint, yeah. Do I think investigators should be crossing over other people? You know, I was I was torn before I wrote before I read that um, in the book, and I was all about it. Like, yeah, if you're gonna like cross people over, like go to the light, Carolyn. Like that's uh, like the first thing you think of. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah, yeah. And I think when you're raised, or when you come up in the horror movie world. It's always wanting to cross somebody over. You're always wanting to cross somebody over. Or if like, I'm a huge supernatural fan, right? So it's like always wanting to cross somebody over or, you know, burning the bones. And I don't know, like, is, is that, is that your responsibility as an investigator to do that? Like, I don't, I don't know. It's it, tough. it brings, it brings a lot, a lot of like uh, a lot of good questions around whether or not that's moral to mm-hmm. do that. And I think that was kind of my thought behind it is, is it our place to be the ones to, to, to move them on? I like the way that Amy and Adam approach it. They don't try to say, go move on most of the time. I, I mean, they've said it before that they have, that they can, um, kind of like guiding, saying that it's your, you know, you're the ghost's choice, but right. their, their goal is to help them. Just be right. like, find w- what is it that's that's keeping you here, and and I like that. But I, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head when you said it's kind of a moral question because it it is, it should be, you know, is it our place to 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 almost be? It's almost like invading, right? Yeah, I I mean, 100%. I, so I I don't disagree with you guys, but just to play devil's advocate, there, how different? I get well, I I guess how different is that situation? Say from finding someone who is in a ditch delirious from lack of water and because they're delirious they're saying no no i don't don't help me go away mm-hmm. and like a ghost is in a pretty desperate situation or at least theoretically they are and who's to say they have all their faculties so i could see how it could be a very complex issue oh, that, yeah. that that said i mean me personally i've always fallen in the camp of uh you know we don't know what you're moving them on to 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, you know, we don't we don't know what is beyond death. Despite talking to Robert Ginsburg, who should be the expert, we don't know what lies beyond death. And you know, and I've had a near death experience. I don't know. I mean, it is the great mystery of mankind, and it's kind of absurd to say go into the mystery, go into the darkness. I mean. It could be that, I mean, I do think that when it comes to what ghosts are, it's kind of an all of the above. I think some are imprints, some are probably an artifact of some kind of temporal disturbance, and I think some are spirits, uh, pieces, either whole souls or pieces of them that are stuck here somehow. And obviously, doing what uh, the kindred spirits people do, what Amy Bruni does, it's important, you know, giving them help and basically just giving them the chance kind of to help themselves by asking for it which I think is is the right way to go about approaching it. Um, but I, I mean, I still come back to how can you know that, you know, that if they, they were of a better mindset that they wouldn't, you know, say, yes, I want to. Mm-hmm. I want your help in the situations where they're refused. Uh, and that's the difficulty. I mean, you know, the whole idea of social work for the dead, it, it kind of reminds me of the difficulty of being a human doctor versus a veterinarian. You know, you you have such a reduced ability to communicate with your patient to actually assess what their needs are. Usually they're putting it together based off historical research and a couple of words out of a spirit box. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's very easy to lose a whole lot of context uh, when that happens, you know, because they might be saying light, light. Well, go to the light. You're free when really they're saying, hey, please leave the hall light off. It keeps me right. it keeps me awake at night when I'm wandering around screaming. That's why I that. Because, you know, spirit boxes are notorious for only giving like one or two words, not really getting full sentences, is why I want to try the experiment that Amy and Adam have done a little bit, where you have multiple spirit boxes running at the same time, one person asking questions and seeing if you get related answers or continuous answers through both boxes. That'd be cool. And But doing it through the Estes method for both of them. Yeah. I mean, because I feel like, and we'll get... We'll talk briefly about this a, a, a little bit um, in the summary, but I think that the Estes method is the only appropriate method to utilize spirit boxes, in my opinion, because outside of that, I feel like it's kind of wishy-washy on whether or not it's actually useful. I, I don't disagree, but I will I will put a hashtag on, or a hash on that by just saying the, the only way I know of so far, because I'm sure Correct. a lot of people Correct. are out there experimenting with how to improve that tool or make it more uh i guess not not reliable but yeah but- it, it, a lot it makes make the evidence you gather from it stronger by reducing the chance of projection and and willful interpretation and bias uh just just as an anecdote to kind of help me work my way into my thoughts one of the episodes of a haunting that i remember most vividly is a team of investigators got called to a house that had two malevolent spirits in a moment of very thematic dichotomy there was one in the attic and one in the basement and the investigators were talking to the family about like okay so this is our plan to get rid of both of them and she stopped them and she was like no 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 i called you here about the attic and they're like but there's a thing in the basement and she's like he's fine leave him alone he has never done anything to any of us and the investigators we're very insistent that, like, no, if we find a ghost, it has to be crossed over. And I was on the side of the mom of the house where she was like, he has never bothered me. He has <laughs> never bothered my children. And she was like, they tracked down 
the the man that they were fairly certain was haunting the basement they had tracked down his daughter and she was coming to the house and having conversations with him in the basement oh that's cool yeah and so the mom of that episode was just like no you will leave him alone this is his home like Mm -hmm. he has every right to be here and so i'm kind of on the fence of like if the ghost especially if it's not actively antagonizing anyone that's living in the building and it's not being dangerous and it doesn't seem like staying there is causing it additional pain i feel like that rapidly becomes not our business yeah and again i have to start putting things into social work terms of nick brought up a very good example of finding a person who was essentially laying face down in a ditch trying to commit suicide via the elements. And that absolutely is a situation where you should be interfering because that person's clearly not in their right mind. But if if the person is not actively being eaten by snow leopards, um, I just feel like if they say, I don't want your help, and they're also not unleashing snow leopards upon other people... I don't know, maybe even ghosts deserve autonomy. Right. I mean, I, I do believe ghosts do deserve autonomy, especially if they are, I mean, what Amy Bruni proposes there, which is, you know, the classic, they are discarnate spirits. They are consciousnesses unmoored from the body. But they're also people, too. Yeah, I, I, I got that. Thank you. <laughs> she only put it in the book like seven times. I got yeah. that message very clearly. Hey, I'm just reminding you. Uh, so snow leopards did you have more of the thought from the I, I did but i lost it it was about something you said before the snow leopards but the snow leopards threw me so hard it, it <laughs> erased everything else i had in my head ah, um, that's okay but uh but yeah so i'm i'm on the fence of like if the ghost does not want to be crossed over that you shouldn't pressure them into that especially because even if that is what's going to be best for the entire situation long term Uh, Remember that thing I talked about, about throwing yourself against a brick wall? Mm. Therapists can do that just as much as clients, and it will just make the client shut down. True. So if you're trying to approach paranormal investigation in a social work kind of healing and harm reduction manner, there are going to be times where the entity in question is going to have a very different solution in mind than you do, and that solution needs to be considered and respected because like 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 we've nick has also said we don't know what we're forcing them into and it's entirely possible that whatever they're doing here and now is not only is what's best for them and is what we're they're supposed to be doing like the investigators that were trying to chase that ghost out of that basement and possibly robbing his daughter of the last connection to this. And like the, the man had died tragically and mm. quite young, had been separated very forcibly from his daughter. And the family actually felt safe in the basement. They're like, if we went down in the basement, the dark entity in the attic would not follow us. Mm. So what problem were they going to solve by forcing the weaker, benevolent entity out of a house with an antagonistic dark force that seem to be kept at bay by that man's presence hmm. you know it, it made me think about something actually there because i was thinking about okay so modern humanity's been around for what three hundred thousand years something like that give take evolutionarily sure okay and if if all it takes to make a ghost is to be a human who died it's, billions more people were have born lived and died than there are on the earth today uh, this is something john tenney's brought up right mm-hmm. 
I mean, look really, think about every ghost story you've heard. What's the oldest ghost you can think of? Like, I'm thinking maybe some of those hooded kind of monks in the in the castles in England mm. or in your, across Europe. But still, that's still relatively recent in the scale of 300,000 years. Why aren't we overrun with the ghosts of cavemen or, or Neanderthals or, uh, God, Bronze Age uh, soldiers? Instead, we get Gettysburg soldiers. We get, uh, you know, we, we only go back, especially here in the U.S. I mean, I haven't heard of a single ghost that uh, was, you know, they could find its identity. Uh, and it wasn't, it was from, you know, earlier than maybe 1800. Right. And so what if, I mean, the old adage stays true. What if uh, time does heal all wounds and what most ghosts need to move on is just time to process their shit? Well, and, and what if, like, you know, they're, they're coming back, the ghosts coming back. It's, it's not necessarily an imprint because they left something behind so much as a choice that they made to come here for whatever reason. Maybe it wasn't a conscious choice. Maybe it was a choice from the... The, the the greater consciousness I, I i don't know but there's a reason that they that they were left here and they choose they chose to come back to this time right here right now for xyz reason and um where if we try to force them to move on whatever they're not actually able to grow and maybe the choice that they made was to come back so that they before they re-entered the cycle they came back here for whatever reason if we force them back into the cycle, they don't grow. Their consciousness doesn't level up, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. It's it's possible that some people are born into certain lives to be ghosts for a while. I mean, and it could be like if, if we go off the idea that we choose when and why we come back, maybe we also can choose to stay behind for a little bit before we reenter the cycle. Absolutely. I can absolutely believe that. You know, ultimately, as we say repeatedly, we don't know. But I don't, my, my personal opinion, I don't think it is the place of the investigator to ever force a ghost to move on. I mean, to be completely frank, I'm not, uh, I guess, here's the thing, I haven't been on these investigations to feel the energy in the room change or whatever they say happens. Mm-hmm. I am not yet fully convinced it's even possible. No, I, I'm, like, not, I'm not either. But there are so many investigators out there that, that, that not only believe that they do, that they can, but that tell people that, they, that that's what they do. And maybe that in giving them some kind of false sense of security that they've moved this ghost on when really they haven't done anything at all. It's a giant placebo effect. Right. Well, and it could be that for some people, the haunting does abate because they are no longer expecting there to be a haunting. Right. You know, what we were talking about earlier were expectations shaping uh, our experience with the paranormal. Yeah. Could be. Big if true. Big if true. <laughs> we should never have been taught that phrase. No, you're right. We probably shouldn't have. I don't know. I think there's a, I think there's a lot that could go, that could go into this question. Uh, now I now I really really want to play a D and D character who's a Goliath named True. <laughs> Big if true. Yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> I hate you so much. Uh, All right, let's move on before we get caught into a spiral of you know us. For our fifth lesson, there's no such thing as a ghost detector. Despite what pop culture says, there is no PKE meter which senses psychokinetic energy, 
No photon packs or traps for ghosts. There is a lot of technology, but what proof it gathers is truly speculative. When Amy first started investigating, she was focused on getting proof, and therefore was over-focused on her equipment. Over time, she realized that the gear was there to support an investigation, not dominate it. Quote, the key to being a good investigator is the ability to strike a healthy balance between being in the moment and unbiased analysis. Use the tools effectively to do their job, but don't let it blind you to the process, says paranormal investigator and owner of Ghost Stop, Sean Porter. To him, the best analysis happens after the investigation, when reviewing the recordings. In the moment, one should focus on their surroundings and stay in the moment with the investigation. Amy talks about another misconception she has encountered in this world, and that is that all ghost hunters are psychic and can sense ghosts. She has found that the truth is that simply by sitting, listening, and observing, she believes that your energy and intention can shape the outcome of the investigation. These places often act like a mirror, giving you the experience you came in expecting. Sometimes, for example, she can tell when an EVP session is going to be a good one even before she has listened to the recording. And sometimes, she can tell when nothing is going to be there. In either case, she advocates using your intuition as a powerful tool in your arsenal. Like with any job, the more you do it, the more you can sense and feel what's happening or going to happen, and the better you get. It doesn't mean you're psychic. To me, that shows that you're experienced. If we are to believe that ghosts are people too then the same kind of feelings we get when we walk into a meeting and know that it's going to go well or not, feeling the tension or lack thereof in a room, can be applied to talking with the dead as well. She spends a good portion of this chapter going over the different kind of equipment that she uses, calling the recorder the necessary piece of paranormal investigation, and I'm not going to break it all down and go over every example, I'm just going to talk about a little bit here. So she also talks about spirit boxes and the history of them all, starting with the Frank box in 2002 and into today's more modern boxes and uses with things like the Estes Method, created by Connor Randall and Carl Pfeiffer when they were resident investigators at the Stanley Hotel. Frank box, which I will note, was originally made to talk to aliens. Correct. Not ghosts. In this method, the Estes method, one person asks questions while the other listens to the spirit box via headphones, and the listener is also blindfolded. They simply say whatever words or sounds that they hear that come through clear enough to understand. Connor says, quote, Having somebody so focused on that noise can put them into something like a trance state. At that point, you're wondering if it's a ghost speaking or it's a psychic middle place that enables something to occur. We're not sure where the answers are coming from, but people go into a different state of mind when they go in there, and as of now, it seems to be working to communicate with something quite often. Amy goes on to talk about SLS cameras, a camera that tracks kinetic movement, and she talks about the Boo Buddy, a tool that she uses when she believes that she is talking to the spirit of a child. On Kindred Spirits, they use all sorts of technology all of the ones that I've listed, and more. The industry is constantly changing and evolving as more and more tech is being built and created. The point I believe that she wants to emphasize is not that the tech is good or bad, but that it is a tool, and it's a tool to be used to help aid in the investigation, not drive it. 
our next lesson is it's not always a ghost. Now, most of the time, a haunted house isn't actually haunted. In fact, proper paranormal investigation involves excluding every single prosaic explanation of the reported phenomenon. On Ghost Hunters, and many other shows for that matter, the goal was to debunk the haunting. That way, if they couldn't do it, they knew there was a greater chance of genuine paranormal phenomenon. The harder you are on the need to provide valid and irrefutable evidence, the stronger the evidence will be when you can't disprove it. This means that skepticism is essential for genuine paranormal investigation as it indicates you are interested in finding actual truth, not just proving your pre-existing bias. Old pipes, wind blowing doors shut, and pressure changes causing doors to open and close are the most common sources of haunting effects. Sometimes the floor is uneven or crooked, and maybe the door casings are off. Maybe your 20-year-old alarm clock is giving off powerful, unshielded EMF, and hence is causing mild hallucinations. Thermal is another useful tool for this, and can be used to find colonies of animals in the walls, which is often a source of the odd sounds. During one case on Ghost Hunters, they used it to identify an animal in the wall as a source of mysterious scratching. In another case, the owners of a restaurant in Southern California thought their establishment was haunted, as they would come in every day and find glasses broken on the floor. The investigator set up a DVR camera overnight and captured a rat scaling the wall and climbing behind the glasses, knocking several off. <laughs> I loved that story. Ghost rat. <laughs> it's just like, we have a horrible antagonistic poltergeist. You have a gentle friend. I mean, the health department won't think it's a friend. A but. gentle friend. Like many professional paranormal investigators, Amy says that photos, especially those she was not present for, are the worst to debunk. Too often, camera artifacts, shadows, and blurs can come off as spooky, but, to the trained eye, are not paranormal at all. She says that part of the issue with this can be attributed to pareidolia. Quote, one is pareidolia, which is the tendency to see patterns and images in places like clouds or in abstract patterns. Human brains are optimized to recognize faces, so we tend to see them when they're not actually there. Another aspect is apophenia, the tendency to perceive connections between unrelated things. Think about all the times you've heard stories about people seeing Jesus in the trees or Mary in their grilled cheese. She also says that people naturally have selective attention. Quote, in this instance, it's the tendency of the human brain to only focus on one part of what's happening, at the exclusion of other equally significant things occurring at the same time. And I experience this all the time as I have ADHD. Nick experiences it too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Prove it. We have. <laughs> <clears throat> This is a problem in paranormal investigations, as investigators may be prone to only seeing what they want to see. Artifacts and photos are most commonly caused by bugs, moisture, smudges, smoke, hair, the camera strap, or spider webs. There are thousands of non-paranormal explanations that could explain what is happening with these photos, especially in today's day and age where everyone has a powerful camera in their pocket. Or photos are even more problematic, as anything, even dust, can create them. While Amy has seen fully formed glowing orbs with the naked eye, they often look nothing like the orbs commonly seen in photos. 
probably one of the more frustrating things that Amy and other paranormal investigators will have to combat is the fact that many people want there to be a haunting. If it's not a haunting, then the homeowner will have to deal with a health issue that's impacting themselves or a loved one. And people either don't want to do that or don't want to acknowledge that there's an issue. This is extra prevalent in parents who, for some fucking reason, would rather their kid be haunted than have a mental illness. Or, well, just be a kid. Sarah Coombs is a psychotherapist who studies where paranormal phenomenon and mental illness intersect. She says, quote, There's a whole list of diagnoses that include auditory, visual, and even tactical hallucinations that could easily be mistaken for paranormal activity. Amy has seen this most often with parents who insist their child is possessed or under spiritual attack, but refuse to do any medical investigations at all. However, the health situation can be a part of the paranormal ongoings. The haunting may cause intense stress or anxiety, which may aggravate the underlying conditions. Coombs has found that in many homes reporting paranormal phenomenon, there is some underlying trauma which the entire family is trying to deal with. Quote, a haunting is something you can't be blamed for and something you don't have control over, opening yourself up to the vulnerability, the shame, and the guilt that often accompany events such as physical or sexual abuse and or domestic violence, whether inflicted on you or someone you love, is incredibly difficult, and it can take years of hard, highly emotional work and therapy to overcome. She goes on to say that grief and bereavement can also have an impact, with some wanting there to be a haunting so that they can believe their loved one isn't gone, or that they are there with them. Sometimes we believe that the entity is a ghost when, in fact, it might be something like an agrigor or a tulpa. In 1972, a group of researchers in Canada conducted what became known as the Philip Experiment. They wrote a full history for a fictional ghost, then drew pictures of him, thought about him, and tried to contact him. The idea goes back to researcher T.C. Lethbridge, who theorized that psychic shock or trauma could imprint a feeling in a room. Amy says that she encountered an egregore on the Queen Mary in Long Beach, California. The ship had a long, tragic history of warfare, death, and horror. Over 49 deaths have been connected to the ship. However, many of those deaths are difficult to find in the historical record. There are stories of a girl who drowned in the swimming pool, a worker who was cut in half by the door in the broiler room, and a man who was arrested on board and stored in the stateroom. When they opened the door, he had been mysteriously eviscerated. Uh, I wanted so much follow-up to that, and there was none, which I understand because that's not the focus of the book or the chapter, but it's one of those, just the true crime in me woke (laughs) up and I was like, I must know. I must know all of the entrances and all of the exits, and I must know the suspects and why they were exonerated. Maybe there's a book on it. As an aside, uh, reading about the Philip experiment in this book caused me to stop reading the book for several hours because I totally fell down a rabbit hole online. Uh, Uh, It is a fascinating story. It is incredibly interesting. I've actually heard about that uh, a few times. Uh, It's been touted as proof that the paranormal is bunk. No, though, it's, it's proof that the paranormal is way weirder than we thought. You know, I've come to that conclusion, too. After the Queen Mary was retired, it was purchased by Disney, who wanted to develop a theme park at sea. They used one room as a prototype stateroom akin to the Haunted Mansion. They wired the room so that the floorboards would creak on their own, faucets would turn off and on, 
and spooky faces would appear behind the mirror. Sadly, the plane was not profitable and was inevitably shut down. The ship owners still had events and investigators would come onto the ship, but the room that Disney had set up was always locked to secure that sweet Disney intellectual property. And due to this, a legend spread about the mysteriously locked room. As such, investigators and tourists were always going to that room to look for ghosts, attributing all sorts of negative phenomenon to that room. On the most recent strange escapes trip to the Queen Mary, John Tenney and the Newkirks were investigating while small groups came in and out investigating in that room. People were getting some responses, but they were largely incoherent. The one through line being lots of anger in the responses. Finally, when Greg invited the entity to name itself if it didn't have a name, they got a response of hassle. They realized they were likely dealing with an aggregor. It didn't say its name because it didn't have one and didn't want to bother with picking one. All the people going into that room were expecting to find a malicious ghost and brought that energy in and inadvertently created the haunting that they were looking for. And with that, we will enter discussion question number three. Okay. Do you think that it's a good idea to continue to investigate and build on reputations of an area of being haunted when the truth may be less exciting? For example, room B340, which was the Disney room, had a reputation for being extra spooky when in reality it was just locked to protect Disney IP. Should investigators and researchers make the history known about these places like this to try and stop the buildup of that energy that could lead to something like a, a more negative aggregore? And should investigators be trying to prevent creating these kind of thought forms? Um, yes. Yes to both of those things. I, ab- I absolutely do believe that it's important to make the, the, the history of these places known uh, j- just, j- just because we, you know, going back to the thing that I said way back at discussion question one of things be, things often attempt to imitate the boxes that we put them in. And also, I do believe a, a decent chunk of paranormal events is just confirmation bias and selective attention and i think one of the main ways to counteract things like that is to give people these concrete historical details to kind of hold on to like using the 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 disney room example that you brought up of like okay all of these things that that you think you are feeling how much of that is because of the room's reputation Mm -hmm. like to at the very least have that filter up just because just because i do i do think aggregors and thought forms are a thing and it's part of the reason i've been forcing myself to walk into this basement even though it terrifies me to the bone um (laughs) is because it's like i don't want to i don't want to birth something down here that i'm gonna have to put up with for the rest of forever that nick is gonna have to put up with for the rest of forever it, it won't be here long you're going to chase it out with a bat, aren't you? <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a bat or a sword or a priest that I'm just swinging like a mace, but... <laughs> you, just, you just shove it into one of our booming boxes and it's like, you go with your father. This is what I know. I do not want to pack up everything in this house again and move again and have to deal with all of that again. And that's what will have to happen 
um, if I can't get rid of it because my it, it will be either it goes or my wife does, and I would prefer to keep my wife. And, that's that's fair. And it's also just the basic thing of it's again using like psychological and social work terms avoidance of something because it causes you anxiety does not reduce the anxiety it actually makes it worse and it will it will essentially train you to the point where that thing will become a phobia and i think something very similar can happen with allegedly haunted locations uh the amityville house uh has a worse reputation than ever because nobody wanted to stay inside of it so nobody was taking care of it and it's fallen to ruin and now there may there was never something there in the first place i firmly believe there's something there now and to put it bluntly it's our fault it's our fault that there is something in there now and so so yes i think it is it is important for investigators to research these histories and to make them known as well as the mental illness aspect uh with respect of the affected party's privacy is always kept in mind but it it every piece of evidence needs to be brought to the table before the judge can make a ruling mm. essentially um i i agree i think um you know, obviously, I, I don't. We we shouldn't. We should. The truth should always win out. We should be trying to get to the what the truth is of the actual history of what these entities might actually be, if there even are entities there. Um, that said, I don't think uh, we have a choice in this regard because, quite frankly, even the histories that we think are true might not be. Uh, you know, history has been uh, butchered and rearranged and uh, washed over so many times. There are so many parts of our history that we'll never know the real truth of what happened there. Um, and the other thing I'd say is it really does depend on your goal. And this might sound, I don't know, moralist. Uh, but if, for example, if I was studying agrigores and I wanted to, uh, you know, get a case to, you know, get a case, I might even perpetuate a myth like this because I'm trying to create something there to study it, um, which I could easily see some people doing, or at the very least some paranormal investigators saying if, you know, they might not be doing anything to perpetuate it, but they're certainly not doing anything to stop it. Even if they're aware that it might be an aggregate because, uh, because why, why would I stop something that is going to generate phenomenon that I can then record and put on my YouTube and that's not I don't mean to make out parallel investigators like they're you know vultures circling the dead. I don't. I I I'm more uh You're more floating the idea that some of these people are Scooby Doo villains. Well, no, it's it's more we have to take an honest look at the incentive, uh, uh, the the motivation behind why that person's doing it. Because if you know they're like Amy Bruni and they wanna get to the truth and find and help the dead, they're not going to do that. But if their goal has been prove the paranormal or prove ghosts. I can't think of a better way than doing it than creating your own entity because mm -hmm. you, it's basically as close as you're going to get to a controlled setting for a haunting. Right. Uh, yeah, you've yeah. made it. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I could see it both ways. I think on a gut check moral level, obviously we shouldn't do it, uh, at least until we fully understand what that is because – and for all we know, we are creating a sentient entity that will persist long after we're dead. And uh, that is a massively irresponsible act without understanding what we're doing. That said, a lot of people become parents without understanding what they're doing. So, <laughs> I mean, all, all valid points. Yeah.
I thought so. It's why I said them with my mouth. <laughs> Chris. I think um I think his, the history of the you know the locations and the history behind these things and like any paranormal activity should definitely be surfaced. But then you like like we were saying, you kind of get into that Philip experiment kind of area where you're coming up with these things and you're essentially manifesting uh, a haunting, just like in, you know, the, the zombie boy uh, kindred spirits episode, Mm -hmm. you know, Amy and Adam, literally they sat there, they took pictures that were blurry of a quote unquote zombie boy that people claim that they saw, whether that was through pareidolia or whatever the case may be. And literally sat there and wrote a script Mm -hmm. and then had enough energy behind that to, to manifest that. Um, but then like, let's say so-and-so goes into a potential, uh, paranormal haunted place, right? And they conjure up and, uh, think about like what this haunting could be. And it happens just like with the Philip experiment. Okay. So we have that history 20 years from then, let's say somebody else starts seeing something else, which is a total different entity that never existed in the prior history but now it does because this thought form was stopped thought of, you know the the game of telephone around history has changed so many times that the original haunting or whatever was haunting the place is no longer there now it's something totally different right right it's not consistent across the years so i mean it's it, it could be a good thing and it could be you know a bad thing because the history is just going to continuously change but i mean the, the nature of, of existence is continuously changing history. If you ever get a chance to listen to John, uh, listen to Tenny, talk about thought forms and aggregores, mm-hmm. uh, it's really, really interesting mm-hmm. to listen to what he's saying. And if you listen to the Creaking Door uh, podcast, he was on that, uh, the holiday episode. But the last one for the last year, it was a Christmas episode. And he was talking about Santa Claus and thought forms and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It was really, really sweet to, to like put two and two together like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely, definitely could be a good thing or a bad thing. I, I mean, in general, I would say I, I agree with everything that was said. I think research and, 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 uh, and the history is, is super important because when we don't do that, we continue to build on the reputation of things that may not be true where where we might be building and building and building on, uh, upon something that can become more and more negative right? That is not, ultimately, that's not what we want. That's not what any of us, I, I would imagine, want, want out, well, out, out of this. Well, especially because if it is alive in the sense of, I guess, conscious, because it's not living in the way that it has a pulse, but it, it's living in a conscious way. And if it does have true agency, what is the primary drive of all life? Survive, propagate. And if it is already leaning of a dark nature, it will begin to do things to reinforce that nature. Right. Uh, because it wants to keep being what it is. Right. Now, on a, on a different note, I think that there could be potential benefits to, utilize, like, to creating a positive thought forms and positive aggregores. I'm not saying that it's something that I want to do personally, because I'm not sure, like like Nick said, you know, people bring kids into into the world all the time. Because I think yeah, if you do create something intentionally, it's your responsibility to 
to uh, take care of it in whatever form that might look like. But I, th- I do think that there could be potential positives for creating uh, an agrigore. One of them being showing that you can do this and proving the supernatural, proving that the, the paranormal supernatural is weirder than people think it is, however you want to look at that. But I also think that people unintentionally or intentionally do this all the time when people like, okay, so like Baphomet, for example, prior to the Knights Templar, something like Baphomet didn't exist. Now, maybe after, after they started worshiping this goat demon, Baphomet became a god, became something, an entity out there because they, because they were putting their energy into it, positive or negative, however you want to look at it. But Baphomet as a whole, nowadays, in today's day and age, is not a bad thing. Baphomet is great. In fact, I have a necklace right here with Baphomet on it because of what, because what, of the, what they represent isn't bad. It's good. You know, but a lot of people saw it as negative for many, 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 many years. Yeah. So I think there are positives that can be gained from creating thought forms, creating uh, thing, and, and honestly, it would probably be kind of fun to create something that is your own personal ghost. But ultimately, it comes back to that same kind of question, uh, same kind of thought that we were having in the first question. The first question is the morality behind it. Is it something that we should do, especially if we believe that these things are going to be conscious in, in their own form of life, whatever that might be? So once again, I think it's, an over, it's a complicated question, and I think a lot of it comes down to the individual but I think the important thing, in my opinion here, is if we know that there is a negative entity somewhere that was built because of negative um, energy being brought into a place and it is developed and created an, an aggregate that's now causing bad things to happen, negative hauntings, that it is the responsibility of the investigators to show that this is an aggregore that was created because of this false intention. And then maybe utilizing some of the techniques that I've seen from the Newkirks, from Amy and Adam, from John Tenney, try and turn that, that entity around. Because I don't believe, I don't believe that it, if an aggregore was created with negative intention, that it is forever negative. I believe that if it was created with negative intention and you then pour positive intention into it, you can, you can turn it into something that is more positive. I wonder though if you're if you'd be turning into something more positive or dissolving it because you're you're removing the original intention that's, at its core. That that is also possible, but ultimately isn't that that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean it that that, that gets into the whole new messy kind of ethics. What right does it have to continue to exist? It 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 it, it requires us interrogating our definition of sapience and our definition of life. True. Which I am not equipped to do. Uh, uh, I, I do want to point out one thing. We definitely need to find a book on egregores. Because yeah. now I really want to talk I do about too. it. Because I was just about to go on a tirade about super egregores and all that. And I, I really... We, this is not the time. No. Uh, I, I bet you John knows like of a good book. I'm sure. John has a book for everything. Like It doesn't matter what it is. I, I'm, he has a book we for should everything. Either shoot him an email or tweet him. Yeah, no, especially because... The only books that I'm finding, they keep turning out to be thinly veiled white supremacy literature. Yeah, I don't, uh, want, I don't want that. Why does that keep happening? Uh, because the, the occult side of the far right movement believes that egregores effectively are 
the deep state. They are these self-perpetuating control mechanisms that have been put in place by evil liberals that are influencing the minds of the nation, which is why the new generation are all trans and queers. Huh. God, they're so stupid. I mean, here's the thing. The theory from an, uh, from a, an occult perspective, which again is already shifting ground, is kind of sound. I get where they got to that uh, conclusion, even though it's fucking batshit. I don't. The only, because I mean, the it, only Nazi style book that I I think I'm ever going to be willing to cover on this book is or on this show is uh, going to be the sequel series to Alien World Order because we are going to dunk all over it again. Lancaster, I, I, I have been waiting for you to sick a QAnon book on us. I have it. I have one on the list. I do, so, and I. But I, the problem is, is I'm going to be so full of rage. <laughs> throughout that whole episode but i think that might be fun for 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 the listeners yeah yeah uh we, you get to hear brains boiling oh that shit makes me go it makes me so mad are we ready to move to part four yeah all right go. let's do this lesson number seven there's no right way to find spirits simply put there is no single best way to investigate and some methods may work better for one person than another Having a diversity of styles and abilities on your team increases the odds of actually getting some responses or evidence. That is why Amy and Adam utilize others in their investigations. If something is not their specialty or they think they need someone like the Newkirks, they have no problem asking for the expertise. One example of this is in the home of Sharon in Willingston, Connecticut. Sharon has had a pretty shitty ride leading up to this investigation. She lost three children, one at birth and two as adults, in a car accident. She believed she must have some sort of dark attachment, which was attracting tragedy in her life. On top of the tragedies, she saw orbs in her home, and her two remaining children, Anna and Brady, had heard voices or tapping in their bedrooms. Anna had a tarot deck that had once belonged to Miranda, one of Sharon's daughters that had passed away. This was given to her on her 18th birthday, the same night that Miranda had died. They suspected Miranda was in the home, so Amy and Adam used the tarot cards as a trigger object during their investigation. They hooked up the cards to a proximity sensor, and the sensor immediately started lighting up. So they moved on to an EVP session and got an angry EVP that said, I'm right here. The rest of the investigation, however, was quiet. So the next night, they brought in Dana Newkirk. Her tarot reading indicated an emotional imbalance in the house as the source of the issues. Turns out that Miranda and her mother were not talking to each other when Miranda had died. So they brought Sharon down to Anna's room to do another EVP session. During the session, Miranda said that she wanted Anna and Sharon to have a loving relationship, as they were also not on great terms at the time. They had Sharon give Miranda a message, and she indicated how much she loved and missed Miranda, and how much regret she had about the state of their relationship when Miranda died. Emotional and feeling a sense of closure, they told Miranda she could go when she was ready. Immediately, they heard heavy footsteps crossing the room above them, and then they ceased to get any responses from Miranda after that as if she had left. She goes on to tell several other stories, including the time when she believed she'd spoke to Lizbeth Borden, better known as Lizzie Borden, who was acquitted of one of the most gruesome murders in American history. But I will leave that one out so that you will have a reason to buy the book 
or watch her show to find out more about that one. The next lesson Amy wants us to learn is beware of hitchhiking ghosts. She opens with an admission that our very own Jay understands. Amy collects creepy dolls. <laughs> They're good. In my notes, after that section, I, I had a bullet point that was just Jay with two exclamation points and two question marks. <laughs> dolls are good. Creepy ones are even better. They deserve love in a home. Also, those bed dolls she was describing, I want one of those. <laughs> That, that, my no. grandma had bed dolls oh. in her house in Detroit. Like, so my grandparents lived in an old, old ass house in Southwest Detroit. And my grandma was, um, she was bed bound and, but her bed was downstairs, but she had like, when she used to be able to walk, she had a bedroom upstairs and she used to have like three or four of those fucking dolls that went <laughs> on the bed. The bed was made at all times. Nobody's laid in the bed. Nobody slept in the bed, but it was a dark fucking room with a made mattress or a made bed. And like three or four of those fucking bed dolls that just sat upright with their legs out. You want to, and their eyes moved and their eyelids moved. Oh, yeah. You want to talk about fucking creepy? <laughs> That's and like when I read that in the book, I'm like, holy shit, bed dolls are a thing. Yeah. I love them. I, no, you will not, yeah, not in this house. What? Uh-uh. It's a doll. No, no, no doll, doll can be that big because if it comes to life, it will actually stand a chance of killing me. It's a doll. I don't care. It just wants to be loved. So do bears, but I don't invite them in. We can keep the bed doll down here in the basement, and then the accidental agrigor can live inside it. No! Hard no! What What part of that's not happening? Didn't you get, you psychopath? Hey, don't, don't, don't call me a psychopath. What? Where it's recorded? Yeah. Too late. Oh, no. I'm not going to cut that. You're me. <laughs> yes. Well, like Jay, Amy often feels sorry for the dolls and is saddened that people think that they're scary or ugly. Recently, she purchased a 1920s bed doll at an antique store. This was a large doll meant to sit on beds as decoration and often have human hair on their heads. As she went to purchase it, she learned the store owners found the doll on the floor every morning and that they believed that it was haunted. Since being moved into Amy's home, there's been no activity around the doll, so maybe it wasn't haunted so much as it just wanted a good home. People often ask her how she prevents spirits from hitchhiking home with her. In short, she doesn't. Ghosts have seldom given her reason to fear, and most of the time they are just like any other person. That said, She has picked up hitchhikers over the years. When she was 16 weeks pregnant with her daughter, she was on an investigation with ghost hunters at the Old City Jail in Charleston, South Carolina. The only real activity that happened while they were there was the sensation of warmth around her legs, as if someone was hugging her. As she later learned, the room she had been in was where wives of children of convicts, who had nowhere else to go, would live while their husband and father was in prison. These rooms were not managed well, and maybe not at all, as kids would sometimes starve to death in these rooms. As soon as soon-to-be mom Amy began getting upset in these rooms, the producer began getting scratched. The producer was scratched over and over again for the rest of the investigation, as if they'd pissed a ghost off by upsetting Amy. In an effort to collect herself and get away for a bit, Amy flew home. When she got home, everything was fine until she went up to her bathroom and saw a little shadow run down the hallway. However, she didn't see it again, so she shook it off 
and soon left to continue the jail investigation. While she was gone, a friend would go into her house and check on things, and reported seeing the same shadow running down the hall, and later something fly across the bedroom. Amy concluded it was likely the same child spirit that had hugged her legs, so when she got home, she told the spirit it could stay, as long as it didn't scare anyone or disrupt anything, and she only saw the spirit a couple more times before it seemed to leave. In an effort to prevent these kinds of hitchhikers, some investigators pray, use crystals or chant mantras, and perform other acts of self-protection or spiritual connection prior to an investigation. Whatever they need to do to feel ready to enter that space. Amy does none of these things. She goes in knowing that she is strong enough on her own to handle anything that she might encounter, and strong enough to handle it if something follows her home. She thinks that the hitchhikers may just be desperate. They found someone willing to talk to them and won't let it go so easily. That said, she believes that it's important to set boundaries with the ghosts. If you notice one trailing you, call them out on it and tell them that they can't come home with you. Our next lesson is a haunted prison isn't the scariest place you can visit. When determining the scariest place, people bring in their own triggers, latent fears, and bias. To some, a haunted prison would be the worst, but not to Amy. She has investigated many jails, including spending a night in a cell in Alcatraz, which she says is one of the least haunted, haunted locations she's ever investigated. Amy and co. investigated the old St. John's County Jail in St. Augustine, Florida. This jail, founded in 1655, is in the oldest continuously occupied city in America, and the jail has a dark history of violence and inhumane treatment. Disease was everywhere, violence was common, and the men were forced to work in brutal chain gangs. When they were hung, the men would be forced to build their own gallows before being publicly hanged. The property manager says that his staff has been grabbed, that they've seen crawlers, and he himself was nearly pushed down the stairs. The prison was also full of deeply corrupt individuals in its time, and many innocent men were imprisoned and died between those walls. Their first EVP session at the prison found one such person, whose first words were to say that they were not a murderer. The spirit went on to say that the sheriff was not a good man. Naturally, this sparked their interest, so they did research and found the cases of Jim Kirby and Robert Lee, both convicted, jailed, and hung for the crime of murder. The entire time Kirby was adamant that Lee had nothing to do with the murder and proclaimed his innocence until the day they were both hung. They eventually made contact with both men and told them that they knew the truth of what had happened and that Lee was innocent. They also told him they would make sure that others knew the story, and maybe putting the story in this book was one way of doing just that. Amy believes that prisons are full of people who need help, both alive and dead, and interacts with them from that mindset. She is not there to judge, she is there to talk with them, and maybe help them if they want it. In our 10th lesson, If Ghosts Are Real, Bigfoot Is Probably Real Too, we dive into some tennyisms. She even starts off explaining the classic tenny lecture opening, when he asks if people believe in ghosts, and then if they believe in aliens, and then if they believe in Bigfoot, with increasingly smaller and smaller hands being raised. Amy used to be just like these people, but since has seen so many interesting connections and ideas in her research that she has been forced to reconsider. She has seen Andrea Perrin, from the earlier chapters, call down UFOs. To Amy, there is no right answer when it comes to the paranormal. 
Quote, there is no definitive guide to which parts are right and which parts are wrong and which things we're calling ghosts are really part of the animal world or which parts of life on earth are not actually from this planet at all. I've read theories before that Bigfoot is the ghost of a Neanderthal and that the Loch Ness Monster is a ghost of a dinosaur. We don't know what can become a ghost or even how the process works. In short, we don't know how much we don't know. We don't know if anything we know is completely wrong. Amy has found that the areas of the paranormal intersect far too much to be able to tell which ones are real, something we here at Nectivigant are not unfamiliar with. One example being the woman Catherine, who is described in an earlier story in the book, who also told Amy and Adam about what sounded like an alien abduction experience happening in their haunted home. The world of aliens and ghosts have long intersected, as have cryptids. Alien abductions have been reported in haunted homes. Ghosts have shown up on flying saucers, and the spirit box was initially designed to talk to aliens. This isn't new information. According to Greg Newkirk, quote, If you pigeonhole yourself and only focus on one thing without looking at the bigger narrative, you might miss the commonalities and the threads between these different aspects of the supernatural that could open up new paradigms and discussion points. Their show, Hellier, sought to embody this spirit. It begins with goblins, then becomes the search for aliens and eventually ancient gods. Continuing on, Greg says, quote, As we investigate ghosts, we realize how valuable it was to hang out with these people who believe they were abducted by aliens. There's so much crossover that's not getting discussed because these separate areas of people studying the phenomena won't come together and talk about it. So it's become our obsession to figure out what was overlapping. Are people looking into UFOs experiencing the same type of things that people are when exploring haunted places? Where is the crossover and how can we correlate it? The issue here is over-specialization. A UFO researcher will always put anomalous phenomena in the context of UFOs, as will ghost researchers. The cognitive bias keeps these topics siloed when they likely share common roots. Proper paranormal investigation requires a community. Working with others provides new insights, new techniques, and most of all, gives another pair of eyes who may spot something crucial on investigation. This is the idea behind lesson number 11. It takes a haunted village. Collaboration is how the conversation about the paranormal moves forward, and often it requires out-of-the-box thinking. None of what Amy does is something that can truly be fit into one single box, so why would we try? In October 2019, Amy, Adam, Chip, and the Newkirks took part in a Haunted Salem live event on the Travel Channel. In this, three paranormal teams from different shows collaborated on a huge investigation of the entire town of Salem, Massachusetts. Amy and Adam investigated the John Proctor house, home of one of the men who had been executed for witchcraft. The Ghost Brothers investigated the Old Town Jail while Giles Corey had been imprisoned. And the cast of Portals to Hell investigated a haunted restaurant that sat atop the former church where the accused were excommunicated before execution. Amy and Adam wanted to try something new. They had the Newkirks join them at the Proctor house. They wanted to try an intention experiment paired with magic rituals combined with paranormal investigation. An intention experiment, if you don't know, is just a group of people focusing on a specific outcome and then observing what happens. There is no way to measure intention as it relates to outcome, but Amy has observed some interesting events during these sessions. 
For this experiment, Dana would perform some rituals while Greg painted a sigil that would function as a door to the other side. The energy and intentions of the viewers at home would amplify their energy. Dana cast a witch's circle and told them to visualize a bubble around the room. Greg painted the sigil in consecrated ink. He created it with the intention of creating a doorway for the dead. Then, they asked the viewers at home to concentrate all their energy and tension on the sigil. At the same time, Amy did a spear box reading with a Frank's box where they got immediate and strong responses. While enigmatic in its replies, the voice on the box told them that there were people in the attic. At the same time, James McDaniel, who was reporting on social media responses during the broadcast, said the responses to the sigil were significant. Quote, People all across the nation right now are reporting headaches, tightness in their chests, people smelling smoke, saying it's all coming from the concentration on the sigil. He quoted someone saying, I have never felt so affected by something on TV. It got so intense that they had Dave Schrader interject and tell people to invert the sigil if they wanted to close it on their end. Then, they finally broke the circle, releasing all the built-up energy into the house. Now, it was time to start investigating. They started in the attic. Nothing. So Chip went down to the dining room and began a seance. The table began to seemingly vibrate as Chip called out to the spirit of John Proctor. The table vibrated so intensely, it began rocking back and forth. Chip seemed to enter a catatonic state and was only roused when Adam lightly slapped him. Dana pulled some tarot cards and pulled the devil, a card all about manipulation. She then shuffled the deck and pulled another card, the devil, again. What does all this mean? Did they actually prove anything? Greg Newkirk says, quote, The thing about the paranormal is it's subjective, and if you want to experience it, you have to subject yourself to it. Only the people who decide to seek it out or who are in a mental space that seems to attract that type of activity are going to experience it. You see hauntings in places where there's trauma, abuse, or difficulty, and things are in a state of agitation or incompleteness. And with that, we're going to move into discussion question number four. So let's talk about that Salem Live event. To some, that ritual was probably nonsense. What Greg did, opening up a portal to the realm of the dead, or whatever you want to call it, the point is, to someone who doesn't practice magic, and is just interested in ghosts, they might call bullshit. So first, what did you think of the ritual? Did you think it was nonsense? But more importantly, do you think that magic and spiritualism have a place in these investigations? Sure, a priest will do an exorcism, a witch will cleanse their space, but when it comes to investigating the paranormal, should investigators avoid trying to use magic? Okay, so I'm going to go out and say something pretty uh, slightly controversial. Magic is nonsense. Uh, no, 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 I'm not, <laughs> let me get let me clarify there. Uh, at least this is my interpretation based off of the works of Peter Biebergall, uh looking into Gary Lockman, uh, looking into some of the older occultists like Blavatsky or or Swedenborg. Um, I think that magic is whatever you need, again, whatever you need to do to complete that occult circuit, to focus and channel your will. And if that is opening a portal to the dead, great. If it's laying some runes on the ground, great. If it's, I I don't know, uh, putting a unicorn head and a thong on and going running around invoking the god of unicorns, great. As long as it works for you. And I think 
I think that's the thing. I, I don't really, I, I try to avoid dogma. And so I, I tend to think anything's going to work if you believe it will work. Uh, and that's because ultimately all you're really doing is giving your logical brain permission to kind of take the backseat, to let that intuitive side of you connect and interface with the universe, as it were. Um, and I think it has a place in paranormal investigations if you want it to. Mm-hmm. I mean, re- again, you come back to what is your motive to be an investigator? If, you're, if your motive is to prove that ghosts are real, don't use it. You know, because again, you, you'd be proving something that a lot of people don't believe in with something that even more people don't believe in. Right. Um, and so you're not going to get anywhere. That said, if you're just looking to have the experience, sure. And I can see how it would be a great benefit, assuming, you know, assuming it actually works. You could be just by in the idea of maybe magic is just affecting yourself, which is how some people interpret it. It's a self-transformative act. Maybe you're just shifting your frequency to be more in a line with the place or the ghosts uh, like we were talking about earlier. So really it. I mean, one could make the argument that practicing magic is you actively working to shift your frequency. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so really, do what you want. <laughs> like, do what you want. Don't hurt anyone. And and try not to take it all so seriously. And I, that's not to say these aren't serious topics. But I think people get in trouble when they start uh, buying into their own mystical might. You know, when they start walking down the Aleister Crowley route. And, uh, I mean, that just leads to... That just leads to bottoming a guy into insanity out in the desert. True story. True story. Um, sorry, I need to purge Alistair Crowley from my mind real quick. Um, Don't purge him too far. We'll probably do a book on him eventually. The sound of slab on slab God, in, in no, the desert. No, <laughs> Slab on you slab are, in the desert. I, oh, I like that. It's like the, it's like the name of like an 80s album. I was thinking like title of the episode. Slab on slab in the desert. Some hot slab on slab I action. I need you to not. Oh, the sand is going to get into all the folds. I. <laughs> My answer to the actual question <laughs> is, um, sure. If you if you know what you're doing and you have a specific goal in mind and a specific plan, like mm-hmm. for why you're going to do that. Uh, if you just are, if it's just like. I'm going to cast a spell in a haunted location. How's that going to help the haunted location? I just want to do it. Please, please do not. I, even if just like, you know, we were talking about intention and expectation and how that can directly affect these entities and the buildings in which they reside. Uh, let's say that you you go in there and you're you don't really have a plan for what this ritual is necessarily supposed to do. You just like got it off the internet and then you start, messing around with it uh and then you think that it caused something to change and you thinking it caused something to change sparks your anxiety makes you much more afraid than you were before maybe it turns you aggressive it it's like because magic is so like nick said was is so rooted in intention and in purpose i I think that it shouldn't, and I'm thinking specifically of like some of the lower tier ghost shows, ghost hunting shows that we've criticized in the past of people that are just trying to get spooky phenomenon for entertainment's sake without really considering uh, what pain they might be causing the entities that they're attempting to film. 
I I think doing magic without a specific intention in one of these locations might agitate things or cause consequences that you're not like uh, just just for the record. So nobody takes me out of context. I'm not saying that's what the Salem live event was. That's that's fine. I'm talking about uh, I'm I'm talking about 19 year olds breaking into haunted penitentiaries and being like, and now we're going to summon the devil. Yeah. No, no, do not do that. Yeah. I mean, there's a good chance that somebody doing that is what led to the event that Nick and I experienced at the host factory. Oh, it's entirely possible that that was just literal middle schoolers. Yeah fucking around with a book that they stole from somebody's creepy uncle I, and now honestly i just hope they didn't kill whatever animal those bones came from i hope they didn't kill some poor cat that's the thing that's that's bothered me ever since yeah no now I, now hastor prince of pestilence just lives in that hose factory that's a shitty home yeah really we've been in it. it's shitty yeah chris what do you think i think magic is cool <laughs> um, yeah. Me too. I've always, been, I've always been a fan of magic. Like, I don't have like great sleight of hand, but I mean, I can finagle something. Um, but no, I mean, if, if if that's like what you know and you know it well enough to bring that into an investigation, sure, why not? Why not do it? Yeah. Like, I think you know the new Kirps are credible enough. You know I I, lo- I love Dana and Greg and, and the what they do and the ideas they have. Um, I I think they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And if it is going to help in some way, fuck it, just just do it and, and see what happens. But don't be somebody that's irresponsible. Like oh, I just got uh, you know witches one hundred and one, and we're gonna do this in this haunted location and see what happens. Right. Like don't don't play games so like don't write checks that your ass can't cash right exactly you know I mean? yeah. yeah so i i get that um well and also i would probably put another caveat on that is don't involve people in your magic who are not explicitly wanting to be involved yeah uh which honestly like you know for example we had the in the this story with the salem live event uh people at home who took part uh, in some degree and they they started suffering ill effects mm-hmm. um I mean, and those people, yeah, they were willingly doing it, but if they're like, well, I'm enacting this magical ritual to steal power from everyone watching, and you're a dickhead. Don't do that. I mean, even yeah. if it doesn't work, you're still being an asshole. I yeah. have I have an interesting example of that that I got from some of the some of the online magical communities that I'm tangentially related to. Uh someone was talking about they they cursed like a, a quote unquote enemy of theirs by going to a Catholic parish that they'd never been to before. And submitting that person's name to the name of the the names of the dead that the priest would be ri- that the p- priest would read out and have the entire congregation for uh, like pray for and they were like the and they were like isn't that an inventive curse I did that's and, really fucked up yeah several Catholic witches came onto the f- thread and said do you have any idea what you've just done yeah they're like that is an in- that is a very old and very potent ritual in our community and you just submitted the name of a person who wasn't dead and basically attempting to get this person to understand like we don't care that you cursed somebody we care that you involved our community and fucked with our magic because you just established you don't respect it yeah i think i think you hit the nail on the head right there i think if you're going to utilize magic inside your investigations one you guys like you like you all said you should be 
the everybody involved should be willing one and two that really you should be experienced yes you know, uh, magic uh, in many ways is like your genitals only use them responsibly and with the will sure and make sure you you're using some type of protection yes <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, Oh, I just, just you know, just your your first romantic night with with someone new that you're dating. They walk into your bedroom. You have the bed encircled in a salt ring and some runes later. Don't worry, I have protection. <sighs> you people, <laughs> get out! This is my house. Get out! But ultimately, I I I I think that if your goal is if you're if you're coming into an investigation with an intention similar to. Well, you know, Amy and Adam, for example, um, utilize magic if you, if that's something, especially if it's part of who you are. Like there is a about a zero percent chance that I'm going to go into investigation and not at least protect myself in the way I understand it through druidry. You know, I'm not going. There's no way I'm not going to do that because one, it makes me comfortable, and two, it's part of who I am, and I want to share that i want to utilize that experience and the knowledge that i've gained through my studies my research my practice in this because i feel like they're all connected it makes sense to me why wouldn't i why wouldn't i do that now i guess the flip side of that all is if i if my goal is i'm trying to scientifically prove that that the paranormal is real um i probably shouldn't utilize magic because you like john tenney tells us we can't prove the paranormal we can't prove this with the paranormal that, that it doesn't work like that so i i think there's two side two sides to this if you're just investigating for the sake of investigating or helping the the, the dead being a social worker for the dead utilize magic there's no reason not to it, it, and if it makes it more fun for you more personal that's even better well and and, and if if it's not something that you feel uh, confident in and not something that you want to do, don't use it. It's not a required Ex- tool. Exactly. No. You want to be that. You want to be a tech. You want to be a techie nerd and just utilize tech and, and 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 all that. Do that. I plan to too. I have every intention of putting every EVP I gather through Adobe Audition and cleaning up that audio to see if I can make it even more clear. Because why not? I have the technology and the skills to do it. But yeah. Ultimately, I, I think that it's fine to utilize magic. In fact, I have every expectation to do that myself because I want to and it'll be fun. So for all of you guys who have expressed interest in uh, doing investigations with me, be prepared. I will probably do something druidry Delight. related. I'll probably do something irresponsible, frankly. You, no, you will. I'll you, forget what I'm doing there. I'll wander off. It'll be fine. Yeah, I'll, I'll come. Be, ba- I'll survive. I always. Yeah, I'm like a turd. You can't flush. I've tried. You just need a bigger toilet. Is that what keeps happening to the toilet? I really wish that that was the answer, not something far more gross and embarrassing. <laughs> uh, Ready for the last part? Yes. I, yes, please. Before I continue speaking about my bowel movements, it's only it's a short one, and we'll get to the last question. Lesson number twelve. You don't need to prove that ghosts exist. Reading from the book here, quote, The fact of the matter is, you're never going to change anyone's mind about the paranormal. You're never going to prove to a skeptic that you've had a genuine supernatural experience. You could have the most compelling evidence in the world, 
and people who are hell-bent on debunking it will find a way to prove, to themselves at least, that it's fake. Part of the issue is proof is hard to come by. Ghosts don't show up for their marks, often don't show up on camera, and due to poor lighting, it's often hard to get a clear image of an apparition. Even if you are lucky enough to see one, ghosts often appear and then disappear in a flash, not even giving you enough time to turn the camera. Many believe everything that proves the paranormal must be faked, a lie, or CGI. And over the past years, this behavior has grown increasingly toxic on social media platforms. Several times in her career, Amy has gotten what she deemed to be undisputable evidence. However, when exposed to the rabid debunkers, even that didn't make a dent. You can't please everyone, I suppose. And the issue is, some shows do exaggerate the phenomenon they catch for ratings, which makes it hard for shows which don't, like Kindred Spirits, to be taken as anything more than entertainment. To some of those haters, it's even worse because kindred spirits would come off boring, as they don't always get great evidence, or even any at all. To Amy, kindred spirits is entertainment, especially for those just looking for a spooky time. But it can be more. It is more for people who already believe and aims to teach them to interact with the dead with empathy and integrity. Amy claims their show never fakes anything, and that the research they do is as legit as possible. She even teaches her research methods and workshops at paranormal conferences. Even if they can't find ghosts, Amy seeks to tell some truth every time, even if it's just uncovering historical information, which, unfortunately for Amy and Adam, can lead to upset clients. Most often, what makes clients the most angry is when Amy and Adam don't find enough or any evidence of the paranormal. Or it could be because the historical record doesn't align with the legends and stories they've been told. Quote, Still, like I said, you can't change someone's mind. I really don't think you should even try. Believing in ghosts is a personal conviction like any other. You shouldn't try to change anyone's mind about their belief system. Either you will believe or you won't. But you make that choice yourself. In the final lesson, Don't Believe Everything You Read, she kicks off by saying, quote, Do not under any circumstance take anything you've read in this book as indisputable fact. She says there is no absolute truth, or likely isn't. If there is, it's not one that we can understand. As we have mentioned on this show before, this is not a field of facts. It's a field surrounding one big conversation, one in which there are many, many voices. She says, magic and the paranormal are real, or rather, something is happening, but we do not know what that is. Ama believes that the coronavirus pandemic is going to lead to a resurgence in interest in the paranormal, of which I agree. This show, for example, launched during the pandemic even. Historically, interest in the paranormal, and specifically the afterlife, spikes following unrest, Amy hopes that those that join this conversation in the years to come will bring in new ideas, mash up all that came before, and take steps to further the conversation. She believes that this, in part, is going to be caused by people spending more time at home and noticing the oddities that may be happening there. Speculating myself, people spending time in their home with all these emotions running rampant could be a cause of the increased energy in the home. 
Amy thinks it's also possible that people are experiencing more hauntings because of our societal fear and paranoia is feeding it. Kind of like a massive intention experiment. And it's compounded by every elderly person dying alone without family or people being trapped in their abusive homes. Quote, What we've been experiencing is not going to disappear once we are allowed to freely leave our homes and society opens back up again. The vaccine, if and when we have one for coronavirus, isn't going to heal our hearts. We are all collectively adding to a worldwide amount of negative energy from all this suffering and struggling. Not because we want to, but because we are in a very difficult situation and we are feeling how we have every right to feel. And with that, we will enter our final discussion question. So what do you think of Amy's assessment, specifically with COVID? Do you think that there's going to be increased interest in the paranormal? And knowing what we do know about the political climate and the nature of the world that we live in, what do you think the future state of the paranormal looks like with more millennials and Gen Z starting to influence the field? And let's start with our guest, Chris. Yeah. Well, I think it might just be the Manhattan cross trip of 1984 with all the bullshit that we have to deal with and all the negative energy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of the energy out there, everything that's happened. It's, uh, I'm sure it does take a toll on things, but I think it was either, it might've been Tenny that said this, that I heard, or somebody else said it, that it seems like paranormal, you know, activity is going up through the pandemic and that's because everybody's at home Mm -hmm. like now you're hearing your house you're hearing like normal shit normal noises that you would not hear before because you're off at a gig somewhere you're in an office now you're at home and it's like creaking door here and a creaking board there and it's like oh fuck Uh, my house is haunted it's a ghost yeah right so that's what i think uh, a lot of the the paranormal or what could be deemed as paranormal um has spiked uh, recently within the past two years, but I mean, is it really paranormal? It could be, uh, is, is a lot of that stuff happening because of energy and, um, feelings about everything that we've gone through in the past two years. Sure. You know, does, would it make sense for, for activity to, uh, be spiking over, you know, going through COVID? Yeah. What happens when, if we ever get rid of COVID, is that stuff going to go down? Uh, it just leaves open a lot of a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And what do you think? Uh, like because of all of this happening, there you know there. I mean, I I mean there there is been a a, a surge in interest in the paranormal, which means we're going to see more and more people getting involved uh, that are a part of like you know the the younger generations being like that the the younger side of the millennials and then the Gen Z. How do you think that the influence that they're going to have having being so different from people like Amy and Adam because of their upbringing and now going through this pandemic and everything else, do you, how, what do you think that influence is going to look like on the paranormal field as they start to get involved more and more with the actual investigations? That's a good question. Um, I think that upcoming generations are going to maybe approach things from a more skeptical side mm-hmm. just because we've we've seen it um like we've seen these things play out and we've seen all these ghost shows and we, we were all brought up on ghost shows mm-hmm. where nine times out of ten there it's usually a haunt 
the location, right? Even when you're trying to be a skeptic and trying to debunk things, it's usually something something is haunted or something has activity. So like automatically, I'm going to go in thinking that, yeah, there's paranormal activity, but how can we debunk it? I think maybe like the younger generation might just go in being like, all right, you know what? We, we went through this pandemic for this long. I know what this creaking board sounds mm-hmm. like. And I know what this sounds like. And I know what this sounds like. So we're going to go in with a, a clear head and it's not haunted at all. And mm-hmm. we're just going to try to debunk the shit out of it. I think that's might where it might, might be where it's going, but also with the advent of newer technology that's coming out, I think that's going to be used a lot more to mm-hmm. use technology to debunk, um, these, you know, so-called paranormal mm-hmm. and, you know, investigative hauntings. No, I like, I like that. I, th- I, th- I think that's, I think that's a good assessment. Jay, what do you think about the whole question? Um, so in terms of what I think that the coronavirus is going to do or like in terms of the paranormal community, I, I think what we're going to be seeing, <clears throat> I think what we're going to be seeing over the next few decades is a rise in not only I think we're going to be seeing a lot a rise in extremism on both sides because it's it's interesting that she brought up 9-11 and kind of the boom of ghost hunting shows after that which is in line with his what we've seen historically but uh, uh, from from a media studies perspective the obsession with hyper realism in both TV and uh, like blockbuster cinema that comes from 9-11. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of cultural trauma surrounding that. And for a lot of complex sociological reasons, people started heaping their blame on cinema for not, quote unquote, preparing them for mm. the horror of what something like that would would be like, which the, the, the cynical, unkind part of me is like, you're stupid if you thought movies uh. were going to prepare you for one of the most devastating cultural events in our nation's history. But whatever. Um, and then of course we have the coronavirus. So I think that, I think that there's just going to continue to be more and more extremism between true believers and ardent skeptics as there are people desperately clinging to the materialism that was born out of post 9-11 America and other people clinging to the spiritualism that is born out of not only the coronavirus, but trauma from organized religion and oppressive institutions and uh, essentially this is going to be one more event that leaves people desperate for any sort of control or any sort of theoretical lens through which they can orient these experiences that are simply too big to process Mm -hmm. all at once and i i think that I think that one of the one of the things that we're going to see is stating my house is haunted might just become a lot more normal and a lot more acceptable because like we were talking about, people are going to be stuck in their homes for long periods of time. Even going forward, I'm I'm all spiritual and paranormal stuff set aside. I am deeply concerned for what the new standard of prolonged isolation is going to do to people because Americans are already so obsessively independent to the point of sacrificing community connections. And uh, with work from home becoming the new standard, that's going to be even more detrimental to 
society as a whole. I I like work from home as being such an option for people, but I it's it, it the, the downside of it is going to make that problem significantly worse. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if one of the main consequences we're going to see is if we're going to see a huge uptick in infighting yeah. in the paranormal community, which was already not getting along with itself really well, but the the, the severing of ties the, the the paranoia that a virus like this induces in people, particularly with so many people having so much anger that their lives were taken away from them because a bunch of people wouldn't wear their fucking masks or mm-hmm. get their goddamn shots or wash their damn hands. Yeah. Like I, I, I think that that anger is going to need somewhere to go and if it gets tangled up in this yearning for meaning in the idea of life after death i i think we're going i think it's entirely possible that over the next like three to five years we are going to see very massive very public fallouts between prominent members of this community interesting i hope you're wrong but i could see it me i i hope i'm wrong too and it it might not happen with public figures. I think it's. De- I think a lot of. I think a lot of the small groups that have formed in the wake of the coronavirus are going to implode in a massive way, just because uh, things that are founded out of a desperation to cope with your trauma. Uh, you 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 got to be careful with those things. True. Yeah. Um. I mean. Okay. So I I agree largely with the points you guys have been making. Uh, so I'm going to take a woo, you know, I'm going to take a woo direction with this. Um, and really, just thinking about it, why would there be a spike in interest in the occult, in occultism or the paranormal following a major trauma? I mean, Amy Bernie brings up in the book the idea that well, a lot of people lost people. They want mm-hmm. they're looking for that connection with the people that they've lost. I mean, I don't, I can't think of anyone who is, has been able to go through this pandemic completely unaffected. Everyone knows someone who got it or is suffering some long-term side effect from it or straight up died. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a hard thing to deal with, but, and just kind of thinking now from a metaphysics perspective, uh, maybe the part of the reason is that all that grief and, uh, negative energy and all those suppressed emotions that we don't have time to deal with right now. All of that's entering into our kind of shared psychic space, right? The universal unconscious, the uh, the God mind with a perennial philosophy, whatever you want to call it. And it, it's then what if that is why an interest in paranormal rises? Not because it's like, well, there's negativity in my mind now, so I should look into the paranormal. It's because what if having that in our shared psychic space makes us makes people more vulnerable to negative entities, and so people are having more experiences, so interest spikes. That said, um, from a sociological perspective, if I'm excluding the woo, then it all just seems like a big cycle. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a major event happens, the paranormal community gets a huge influx of thinkers and content creators and people who are uh, really invested in this, and then bit by bit that surge dies, and some people stick on. And they become the new core old guard that the new up and comers will have to fight against when the next major calamity hits. Right. Um, and onward and onward. Um, I mean, ultimately, I, I think that she's onto something there. I don't know if the theory is complete. I don't think there's any way to know if it's complete. Uh, 
I'd be, I'm curious, Nick. Yeah. How do we break that cycle? I, I mean, here's the thing. I don't know if uh, when you say we break that cycle, I know you're not. I know you're not talking about us specifically. Global we, but even at a royal we level, I don't think it it's doable without. I mean, because the big thing that brings people in is the promise of maybe getting a glimpse of the the real world or the other side or mm-hmm. what or the afterlife. And anyone who's researched this long enough knows that, yes, those glimpses do occur on an individual level. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I am, I mean, I know this kind of bleeds into our conversations about UFOs, but I am not convinced the phenomenon will allow uh, hard proof to exist. And I think that you have a lot of people who, when they realize that, when they realize that this is not a winnable game, they're out. They because they're not actually here for right. the mystery. They were here. They're for, here for answers. They want the certainty, yeah. and that is something that you absolutely will not get in the paranormal world. Yeah, that's that's where that thing I was talking about comes in. About like be careful about projects that you start as a way to cope with trauma because it's possible that that project, if you don't handle it correctly, will just become a crutch instead of a healing tool and it will make the trauma worse down the line because you've made them entangled somehow. I mean, that, I mean that, that's honestly something I'm, I'm dealing with right now uh, because of a pandemic. I developed a hobby of painting models and I painted hundreds. Yeah. Uh, I got really good at it. But now when I go to paint, I start to kind of get the, that, those old feelings that I was feeling at the beginning of the lockdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the isolation, the feeling, the walls closing in. And so I need to now work to go through the work of untangling it so I can paint the rest of the models I already bought. I've yeah. never been able to rewatch uh, Marvel's uh, Daredevil because the I binge-watched the first season, all 13 episodes, while I was in the middle of the most intense and most prolonged anxiety attack of my entire life. <laughs> and it got me through that night... I haven't been able to watch it again because just like you described, I get snapped right back to that state of being and I never want to exist in that space ever again. That's why I no longer talk about politics because at the start of the pandemic, I launched a, a political podcast. Yeah. And I, it, I, I let myself fizzle out of it because it was... You are not happy. I would no. I was. It was making me miserable. Yeah. Like I. I did it as an as an attempt to cope with everything that was happening around me, and I was making myself more miserable by doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, which was not healthy. It was not helping me, and thankfully, I let it die. You know, after only ten episodes, and then we launched this show. But, well, I guess we launched it almost a year later. But still, um, no, I, I, I think. That it is, I, I think you guys all uh, said exactly kind of how I was feeling about the, uh, about this question. Um, just, I think that when it comes to the paranormal world specifically, I think that there's going to be an influx in tech. That is like the big thing that I think we're going to get from the, like from our generation and the generation after ours being involved, we're going to start seeing a lot more technology because that's just the nature of our generations, right? We, we all love tech. I, I love technology. And I know that, you know, the generation, like my sister, my siblings generation, they love technology. So I think we're I think we're definitely going to see an influx of that. And I think that one thing that is a positive that will come out of this because of the increase, uh, increase of the paranormal or increase, um, 
interest in the paranormal is we're going to see a lot more people being willing to let people come in and investigate their homes. And then they're going to get, they may not get the answer they want, but they'll get some kind of answer, uh, be it that their house isn't haunted, be it that their house is whatever that might be. But I think that is a good thing because kind of going back into a lot of conversations that we've had, I think that opening your mind up to these things is how we can, as a society, start leveling up our consciousness. Because ultimately that is what I think needs to happen on a society level for us to be able to move forward as, as a society in any way. And I, so, and every time, every event that's happened, if you look at it, um, through, just through the lens that Amy wrote, every time it's gotten a little bit better for how, how more open, how people, how open people are to it. Every time it's gotten a little better. And I think this time, because of how widespread it was, not that it was any worse or any better than the, the tragedy, the, uh, the previous tragedies, but because of the, the day and age and it being in the social media day and age, everybody knew everything that was happening the moment that happened there's so much that's going on and going around that more and more people are going to be affected by it. And I think then there might be the potential to see larger growth from that, especially when you see that there are such positive influences in the community right now that are paving the way for other people to come through, like Amy and Adam, like the Newkirks, like John Tenney, like all the, like all the other people that you know, are in that same circle, you know. There are even people that I thought were were total crap when I when I met them, and turns out they're actually good people, you know, and have the right you have a good head on their shoulders and think about this the right way. Like I watched the lecture from Brian Kano and Aaron uh, uh, Aaron Sagers from at Paracon. Yeah, and I kind of thought they were both a joke when I first after when I when I listened to their lecture. After actually listening to them more, reading some of the things they said, and following them on Twitter. Turns out they're they're actually pretty down to earth people, and they have a good head on their shoulders. It's like that's good to know that there are even more people than the people that I follow that are that have that kind of positive influence. You know, yeah. So I think that there's a lot of good that can come out of this uh, ultimately, um, but I also agree that because of the more materialistic side of both our generation and the generation after ours that we're going to be combating with a lot of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that's my thoughts. Any, anybody else have any final thoughts on anything that we've talked about before we move into the about the author? I liked it. Good on you. <laughs> so let's move on to the about the author, Nick. Okay. Woo! Take so it away. It's actually a pretty short one. Uh, because uh, she's pretty good at not having personal details on the internet, so good for her. Yay, Amy! Uh, so, uh, as we know from the book, Amy grew up in a haunted house and had an early encounter with a spirit at the age of eight, which created in her a passion for the paranormal. Uh, prior to her work as a paranormal investigator, she worked in the health insurance industry, which I found interesting as someone else who does that. Mm -hmm. uh, she worked there for 10 years as a project manager while pursuing paranormal interests on the weekend. Uh, she started her career as a professional paranormal investigator when she joined the TAPS team in 2007 and was featured on Ghost Hunters. She is the mother to one daughter, Charlotte, who was born in 2012. 
She has appeared in Ghost Hunters, was featured on Paranormal Lockdown, and founded her own show in 2016, Kindred Spirits. Uh, She also helped found the West Coast Taps team. After leaving Ghost Hunters, she founded Strange Escapes, a paranormal travel agency advertising trips to haunted locations to conduct coordinated investigations. Uh, She also used to maintain a blog called My Spiritual Life, but I could not find a shred of it, and the site has since gone down, and the domain is for sale. So if anyone's looking for a new blog, that domain's available. Uh, she has a few acting credits to her name, appearing as Jill in two episodes of the 2016 series Point Society, as well as making an appearance as Caroline in a 2015 horror comedy, Better Than Crazy. And she hosts the Haunted Road podcast, where she recounts the tragic histories of haunted locations and then interviews someone who is familiar with the property and its spirits. Very cool show, too. Yeah, it is. And that's what we have. Mostly stuff that, you know, she advertises. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, with that, then, I guess the only thing left to do is to move into housekeeping. Housekeeping. Housekeeping? I said it first. Actually, I said it first. You don't count. You were the starting gun. Fair enough. But if you did like what you hear, then please follow, like, subscribe on whatever streaming platform that you're listening on. And please, if you're on Spotify or Apple, please do leave us a five-star review because it actually does really help us in the algorithm and we would really like to be rated eventually. That would be nice. But if you have any thoughts, concerns, book requests, funny things that you just want to say, maybe a story, go ahead and shoot us an email, noctificantpodcast at gmail.com. And give us a follow on Twitter at NoctificantPod. And you can follow me individually. I'm at MixRoryWicks. I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And Chris, what are you at? I am at Salt and Burnham. And where else can they find you? Or your stuff? Oh, let's see. Uh, Twitter, all the things. You want to hit me up on Twitter. Uh, LoadedChamberClothing.com. Get some clothes. Hang out. And uh, you catch me around uh, Southeast Michigan, all over the place. That 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 sounds similar to us. Uh, but also, we have a Instagram, Noctivian underscore podcast, a Reddit account. Uh, it's just called Noctivian Podcast. A Tumblr. Noctivian Podcast. I There's, am on a one-man mission to get us banned from every single paranormal subreddit. So far, we're at two now? Yeah. I, the, the, the last one didn't even really give me an explanation. It was just, your band. I was like, oh, well, it makes me sad. That was a cool one. Shit happens. I post dumb jokes on Tumblr. <laughs> yeah. We are good at advertising. I mean, we do an okay job. <laughs> any, any, any last words, y'all? Like, finally? Like, I'm going to yeah, no, kill, kill me? you. Yeah. Oh. Um, I think rent is overrated. I never saw the appeal. All right. Well, then, good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there. Don't get lost. Or do. Just get in the first car that, that stops to pick you up. Aren't you supposed to be dead? Not yet. I think it's later. Yeah, it's off air.
never trust a fart. <laughs>